So I will say this. There's two things that uh, will have affected me and I will carry it for the rest of my life. So the day after my phone rang and it was Botham Jean's brother. And at first I didn't believe it was him. And then something told me, and, and I just, you know, I don't know if y'all are religious or not, because at that time I, I would have thought people were pranking me. But something told me, and I, I just, I believe it was, it was a hand of God. Listen to this guy. Don't hang up on him. And then he started talking, and I started to figure out this, this really is his brother. And he said, my mom is coming in. Would you like to talk to her? And I said, absolutely, please. Let me talk to her. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't going to have any answers for her because I didn't have any answers. I needed to tell her that the members of the Dallas Police Association, the members of the Dallas Police Department are sorry that this was not, you know, he did not deserve to die. I saw the most touching moment of grace that I have ever seen in my life. When that young man, his little brother, asked to hug Amber. How is a person that young have such a giving heart to understand the guilt and the pain that is placed upon Amber, that believe that she, yes, maybe she did pull that trigger, but she's regretted every moment, you know, since then. You could see that. And he wanted, he felt that he needed to relieve her of some of that pain by giving her a hug. And kudos to the judge for allowing it and then taking the beating afterwards. I mean, who in their right mind could say she shouldn't have done that and not given her a Bible? I mean, what society have we turned into that it's throw stones, throw stones and hang them all without any compassion whatsoever? I mean, lives were ruined out of this. And to watch that young man with the fullest of hearts, and I believe God laid hands on him and said, I'm going to help heal you. I'm going to help heal Amber. But moreover, the millions of people that saw that either live or afterwards on video, and I think it showed everybody watching that, that bad things can happen. But out of those bad things, people can show compassion for each other. That's what humans are supposed to do. And I tell this to people all the time who promote and don't want to train. I say, hang on a second. Do you think you're a good cop? You know, they'll always say yes. Well, how do you think you got that way? Somebody had to show you how to be a good cop. You owe it to the department to do the same thing to people behind you. You know, so um, I wanted to train, and, and I'm glad I did, because uh, managing people is the hardest thing to do. How do you lead a organization where the majority like 60% of your membership are working the streets every day. How do you sit there and, know, and say, I know what you're going through. I can represent you when you're not doing what they're doing. How do you understand that? You can't. And so I felt that I owed it to them that, you know, they saw me at jail. They saw me doing traffic stops. They saw me doing the same work as everybody else. I'm, I'm, I chose to, to put that in front of my family. The mission, the premise of this organization is we have individuals that risk their life every single day for somebody they have absolutely no contact with or know, and they don't care, they could care less what color they are. They're doing it because it's their calling. Get involved in things outside of this department, even if it's just coaching your kids' soccer team, basketball team, baseball team, 
find the human side of police work or of living because this job this profession if you let it it will kill you whether physically emotionally you know relationship wise find something else out there to believe in other than this profession it's just a job it's not who you are you're listening to the ato bridging the divide podcast brought to you by the assisty officer foundation Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Great leaders are almost always great simplifiers who can cut through argument, debate, and doubt to offer a solution everybody can understand. Colin Powell. Today we are sitting down with a true leader for the Dallas Police Department and someone who made a difference, not just for their own reputation or career growth, but for an entire department, the Dallas Police Department. The Dallas Police Association was formed in 1959 by a small group of courageous officers that saw the rank and file needed a voice for the masses. The DPA forefathers suffered through denied promotions, retaliation from bosses, and experienced the ire of the city of the Dallas government. Just who the hell do these police officers, these public servants, think they are? Who are, are they to stand up to the city and the department to protect their officers. The legend George E. Butler stood up and answered these questions. We are the Dallas Police Association, and we are here to stay. The first president, George E. Butler, helmed the association for six years. Then Thurber Lord, Dan Talkington, Preston Parks, Charles Burnley, the 80s saw Bobby Dell, Danny Hickman, James Ramsey, And then the first ever female president, Monica Smith. Glenn White took the reins and served for 16 years before Ron Pinkston took the keys. Then in 2016, the will of the association was handed over to today's guest. This is a story of a young man moving from South Texas to start a career in Big D. Going to God's country, Southeast, and being part of an amazing 3080 drug squad to enter in the fight for the men and women of the Dallas Police Department. We will hear the journey of this dope chaser growing to become a president and enduring pension issues, fight for pay, July 7th, taking shots from activists like no other. The listener will take a huge peek behind the curtain of Sergeant Mike Mata. From the moment he walked in the doors at 725 North Jim Miller until he turned the keys into the Dallas Police Association headquarters the George E. Butler building. 
Mike Mata, badge 7313. Welcome to the stage. Finally. Finally, yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've been asking you for like three years to come on and you yeah. finally. Well, you know, I always kept saying, you know, when is the appropriate time, you know? And I think uh, now that I'm retiring is probably the best time. Yeah? Yeah. Well, I'm glad we made it happen. Um, you may change your – before this airs, you may change your mind about retiring and just uh, retract those papers. I mean, we'll, just, we'll still air it anyway. But I don't think so. No? <laughs> right. If I want to stay married, I don't think so. Right. Yeah. Well, we got uh, Dallas Police Association President Mike Mata. The sergeant of Dallas Police, uh, longtime friend. We started at Southeast. Uh, I mean, he was already at Southeast, and he had a reputation when I got there in '97. Um, we also have Detective John Valdez from Homicide. You heard him in an earlier episode. Daniel Canetti's here uh, on the mic. We dragged him back, and Sergeant Kent Wolverton's always here. Sergeant Figueroa of the Wellness Units hanging out, and I'm ready to get into this, Mike. Let's do it. All right. Tell us, tell the listener where you grew up. I, I grew up in Houston. Um, you know, uh, went to uh, middle school, elementary school, and all that during that time. Um, had a great childhood, really did. Had great parents, uh, brother and sister. You know, we like normal brother and sisters. We beat the hell out of each other for quite a few years, uh, and then uh, it was time to grow up and go to college. Houston Oilers fan? I was. Yeah. I was until they moved, and then they were dead to me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I cut them off, and uh, my brother's trying very hard, has been for years, oh, to try to flip me to the Texans, nah. but ain't having it. Well, no, the, well, I, I love the Oilers. I liked Warren Moon, and, and uh, he had those three badass receivers there at the yeah. time. They were the only ones running, running, shoot at the time, putting up, you know, Madden football numbers. Well, I'm going to go, go old, old school. Well, I was with Earl the Gamblers. Campbell. No, yeah, see, yeah. so, you yeah. know, the run and shoot started with the Gamblers. That's now, right. You, you know, my dad used to take us those games all the time because I was a cheap ticket. My dad was really cheap. So you could get that ticket for like five bucks. You're in the you're in the building. Um, and that was a really fun game to watch. And then, you know, as they folded, it then folded over to the Oilers picked up that, that offense and yeah. it became what they were. So, uh, yeah, you know, they uh, loved it when we did the old kick in the door when we were this close to the Super Bowl, didn't make it, and then – like I said, they moved, and that's it. Turn my back on them. They pissed away like a 30-something point lead at halftime whoa. against the Bills, right? Whoa. whoa. I, I watched it. I was yeah. mad. I was. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was funny. As I was driving back to college, and I was I could pick up the radio as I left Houston. So I went to school at Tech. You know, and that was like a 12-and-a-half-hour, 13-hour drive. So I'm listening to the game, and we're up by 30 points. Well, you know, yeah. and it was going in and out, so it was bothering the hell out of me. So I just turned it off, and I'm like, oh, we got this. Yeah. And then I get to Lubbock, and I you know, get to the apartment, and my roommates, who are also from Houston, they're just kicking dogs and cats all over the place. And we lost. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Well, I, felt, it, I felt like a Buffalo Bill. They had fan. no – They had no. Mike Rogier, I think, was the running back. And, yeah. he, and they, they did not – yeah, they couldn't run out the clock. And some spare backup uh, – come back and beat them for the bills well and you do that prevent defense right just yeah, prevents you from winning prevents you from winning so i always tell people that you need you better give some shout outs and mentions because when people hear this your friends and your family they're right. going to let you know if you if you miss them i promise right i know i know your brother henry henry yeah get you so talk talk about your uh your parents and your uh siblings yeah name everybody that you ever you better you better that i home. ever knew right well I, I they tell will you let what. you know 
you know, I was very fortunate. Like I said, I was very fortunate to have amazing, amazing parents. You know, it's funny when you're a kid and you're growing up, you know, and you, and you get in trouble for this or that and the other, you know, you sitting there crying in your room or pouting. I'm never going to treat my kids like this. You know, I'm never going to be a parent like that. And, uh, you know, I hope I'm half the parent that, that my mom and dad were, you know. Um, so my mom is, is, is still around. Um, and is having time of her life re- in retirement. Unfortunately, my father passed away uh, in early 2000s, um, which has always been, you know, uh, very hard on me. We were very, very close. And, uh, you know, I'm, everybody says I'm the spitting image of him, um, which I'm very proud of that. You know, he gave me the he- he gave me my receding hairline and my bushy eyebrows. Um, but anyway, um, you know, one of the heartbreaks that is that he never got to see me get married to my wife and uh, never got to see my kids so uh you know that's one heartbreak but uh, great parents really were very involved you know all our sports uh very hands-on um i have an older sister uh who is uh i won't say her age because she'll get all mad about that, but she's a couple 24 years. she's a few 24 years, years old? yeah just a few yeah. years above me um just an amazing amazing person amazing woman um and then my uh my brother uh henry uh, who's a doctor. I'm very proud of him. And uh, he's always kind of been, uh, you know, not just my older brother. And we were kind of, I think they call them Irish twins because we were only like 13 months, 14 months apart. Obviously, my dad didn't listen to the doctor. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, so we kind of almost grew up like twins. And it didn't help that my mom dressed us alike. But um, we, we've always been very, very close. And so he's always uh, kind of, you know, kind of been like a mentor to me, even though we were so close in age. Um um, and so I'm, I'm just very fortunate. I've had a great family growing up. What would you decide to go to tech? What got you there? Oh, this is a pretty good story. Right. So, uh, my brother was at A&M and, uh, when I was a junior and a senior, I used to go visit him all the time on the weekends, go to the football games, have a great time. Well, uh, you know, I was with him one time and, you know, we're having a good time. We're about to go to the game and we have some folks over and, um, my mom and dad just showed up. They just knock at the door. I go to the front door, look through the people. There's mom and dad. I'm like. Thought it was an intervention. I guess. Yeah. Huh? And, and I, you know, right then and there, I said, hey, Henry, mom and dad are here. And he's like, I didn't know they were coming. They, you know, it was close enough, Houston, that they could just drive there. So I said, uh, no, 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 no. If they're going to come see me, they're going to have to work to come see me. I'm going to go a little bit farther. I need a little more length. Um, and so, you know, I decided to go to tech. I two really good friends who ended up who were a year ahead of me who went to tech so that kind of had a lot of play in it but i was very glad that i went to the panhandle some really really good people up in that west texas area it's a good party party uh town there well you ain't got nowhere else <laughs> yeah, to go yeah there, you know when you what are you gonna go to amarillo you know go now, to big texan that's a party it's about all you got to the marfa so. marfa lights you yeah. go out there and watch that they say about tech either you love it or you hate it there's no middle ground right i truly did love it had a good time go raiders yeah so I want to get into when did you decide to get into law enforcement? How'd that, how did that get on your radar? Well, it kind of, uh, believe it or not, tech had a little something to say into that. So I was, I was pre-med because uh, I wanted to be like my brother. My brother's yeah. a doctor. And then I started taking back time. Well, and then I started taking a couple of classes. And some of those classes, you, can't, you ain't going to make it with C's. You definitely ain't going to make it with D's. And so, you know, once you're in a university and you're getting up to 100, 105 hours and you have not figured out what you're going to do in life, they kind of tell you, you know, you need to do something here. Um, and so, you know, I've always kind of thought about policing. And, and, and then I decided, you know what, I, I think that's really something more my 
you know, more my style. So uh, that's when I decided to transfer, and I transferred to Sam Houston and did a real quick one, uh, what, a year and a, and a semester, and I was out. I had, I had plenty of hours. I just needed to do my core classes, law enforcement, and next thing you know, I'm, I'm graduated from Sam Houston on my way to San Antonio. Did you San Antonio? Did you have other uh, agencies in your? Yeah, in, I was actually radar? I was actually in the San Antonio Police Academy when I got hired to Dallas. Um, and I have an you were own, in the academy, so you left and <laughs> yeah, I did. Two, you just left your book sitting there and walked I did, out. I did two academies back to back, and it's it was it was kind of cool. I will say because I got to compare the two, and they're completely different. Um, I had a cousin who was SAPD, and. Uh, you know, I told him that, that uh, Houston had called me because I had applied at the same time. And it just took Houston a long, I mean, Dallas, a long time to call me. And uh, so I told my cousin about it. And he said, look, Mike, I'm going to be honest with you because he had did a lot of research before he uh, picked San Antonio PD. And he said, man, if, if you're looking at making police a career, if that is your profession, you need to go to Dallas. They've got a much better pension. Yeah, look where we are yeah. now, right? And so, uh, which at the time they really, really did. I mean, oh, yeah. you topped out like at 65, 70%, I think, at most in San Antonio, where here, you know, you could get to 90. Mm-hmm. So, we had drop. Yeah, and you had drop yeah, yeah. and all that. And so he said, man, if, if that's what you're going to do, that's where you need to go. So, next thing you know, I packed up and called Dallas, and they said, can you be here Tuesday? Uh, I guess I'm there on Tuesday. So, uh, yeah, so I was four weeks from graduating, five weeks from graduating in San Antonio and came to to Dallas and got in the academy here. <laughs> so, you, so you were in the middle of their academy. At that point, did you yeah. already get a T-Cleos? T-Cleos? Really? It was T-Cleos at that time. Yeah, okay. I already had my license. So I didn't even have to take the state exam once I got here. I, but I still had to take the weekly test, you know. Um, and that was the big difference between San Antonio and Dallas. San Antonio followed the DPS um, protocol of, of academy. Yeah. So it was very, very physical very physical i mean oh they, dps i mean they they've had they've had people like they, die in that training they, they know, put they, it on you man they broke my nose and yeah. uh and if and there in san antonio if you get hurt you're out i mean they'll <laughs> they'll keep you a slot for a job but you're out till you're healed you come back they put you back in start all over again so it was pretty much you know went home to my uncle and he just said hold on hold still and slap my nose and straighten it out and we're going back to work but um like i said it was very very physical there not very academically strong, but very physical. When then, when you get here in, in Dallas at the time, it wasn't really physical. It was more academic strong. Who were some of the Who were some of the instructors there that you remember? Oh man, I had Tom Popkin, great Tom Popkin. Which man, I just remember those heavy hands. I mean, when he put his hands on you, you felt those mitts come on you. Um, and then um, maybe y'all remember who was the the real tall Mumford? No, no, real tall white guy with the salt and pepper hair. Um, he looked like he should have been in Lonesome Dove. And he had the mustache. Shepard? Not Shepard. No, no. Um, golly, real skinny guy, but tall. Um, I swear he looks like he should have been on Hathaway. some dope. No, no, Hathaway. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hathaway? Anyway, anyway, yeah. it was, it, it, I, I just can't believe it. Was there a, fe- a female, too, that was all jacked? That uh, was Dee Dee. Dee yeah. Yeah, that was Dee Dee, you know, and she, you know, she walked like Oh, this. she was a tank. Yeah, Man. she liked yeah. Like Johnny Crook with a wig. That wasn't Mike hey, Monitor. No, no, don't no don't don't worry, nobody listens anyway, Mike. Time, time Nobody's mark. gonna tune in. Time mark. We'll do an edit. <laughs> we'll do that in the intro. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that when I so when I got what year was that? 
That was 95. Okay. Yeah. So when I got I got on in January 97, those folks were already left. I, I didn't get to experience the but I heard they they were they were heard they were tough. Hard yeah, asses. they had a I mean there was like a real real big turnover right after our academy. Yeah. Um left. Um but yeah, they were they were tough. They were tough and uh uh they had no qualms about putting it on you. Oh yeah. There was and a lot of big runners. Big yeah. runners and uh they weren't they didn't care about feelings. They did not care about feelings, and we, you know, I'm, I don't know what is um, what was the old chief, a little Hispanic that was married to uh, Perez, Perez, Gloria, Gloria Perez, yeah, Ooh, man, she let you have it. I mean, she was all five foot one, but man, she would verbally break you down. I mean, a grown man just break down crying when she went to you. What was her role out there? Because when I went through, she in '97, she was the proctor. She, yeah, she, okay, that's what she was the test taker, the test proctor, whatever. But man, you know, we had. Um, we had those uh, prep, you know, on Friday you'd have like a little prep class. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if she just didn't like you, man, she was just like, I don't even know why you're asking questions. You're so stupid. You're not going to pass. And you're just looking at these poor guys over there going, you know, because, you know, a lot of these guys came out of the military or whatever. They hadn't taken tests like, you know, weekly yeah. exams like that in a very long time. And so, you know, us that came out of college, it, we were kind of okay with it. We figured it out. It took them a while, man. And. She didn't hold back, man. She just cut them off at the knees. Well, I remember <clears throat> those tests, and I've talked about it before on this show about how tests, or hard those tests were. And you coming from San Antonio, you said it was more physical. When you right. got here and saw these tests, what would you think of that? You know, I, I be honest with you, I thought coming here, since I already took the T-Cole exam, I didn't think I'd have to take the tests. And then when the I got here, test. yeah, the yeah. weekly tests. And then when I got here and they said, no, sunshine, you're with everybody else. And, you know, at that time, there wasn't no three tries and you're out. It was like you fail the test, you get one retest, and it wasn't an average. If you didn't pass that one, you're gone. You're packing your shit. You're, you're packing out, Yeah, going home. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of stress on a lot of guys and girls. So, um, you know, once I buckled down and figured that out, you know, I, I, I finished pretty high in my class. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I did not. I, I, I was I, the closest I ever got. I mean, I got a 70 on one, and it terrified me. No, 71. And, man, I, I had to really study hard because those, those were really hard. They're yeah. hard tests. They're not – in the physical part we had mumford and judge we were their first classes so they were kind of they mm -hmm. didn't like to run so thank god because we they were more about working out like with weights which was you know i i enjoyed that but you were right it's billy hadaway that billy hadaway okay that shout dude, out that dude hadaway. could run and he could run that long-legged antelope looking well there was the who was the uh the blonde senior corporal that was out there there was also uh and she was known to be really uh, she was a hard ass too uh, as well she was a the, there was a blonde and a brunette, and they were both runners. They were on the DPD running team. Um, Just ran you onto the ground? In the ground. What are some of your classmates? Oh, man. Uh, Wante is my yeah, classmate. Yeah, I saw him um, And then uh, Fred Frazier is my class. Ruben Ramirez is in my class. Um, Tracy Jones is in my class. Um, Armin was in my class. Um, God, um, God. He's gonna get mad. What is he? Skinny black guy. I mean, he talks like this. He cracks me up, man. And uh, I mean, he's a he's a buck oh five, uh, just soaking wet. Is he still on the department? Oh yeah. Oh huh. yeah. Glasses. Yes. Came to academy with a Caprice class. Yes. This dude had it. No, it was a Cadillac. It was like a seventy four Cadillac. Oh, the real long. Yeah. yeah. It only had two doors, but it had three zip codes. Yeah. 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 Like somebody was gonna steal the thing. You know. Like I said, it had two doors, three zip codes. It was huge, man. But we loved it. 
because when we go to lunch, we, almost a whole class could fit in that car. And, in the know, trunk. We, yeah. and we always yeah, made him drive. Five bodies in the trunk. Yeah, he always said, hey, man, what's going on with me? He'd talk like that, and I loved him, man. He was funny. As, he was funny. But, man, that's a hand-sweating joker, man. You shake his hand, better get ready. That thing's going to slide right it's off. It's like he just uh, he yeah. just did a hand sanitizer. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It'll, his name will pop in my head. But but we had some really good characters in our class. We did. We had, we had a good time. So what was Dallas PD's reputation whenever you are in the academy? Like uh, Tough. Okay. Yeah, tough. You know, and um, – you know, it's much more touchy-feely now. We didn't have any touchy-feely classes, uh, not at all. Um, and, you know, it was just a different world of policing at that time. You know, there was no such thing as community policing. Yeah, community policing was putting bad guys in jail, you know, and, and we all felt like that, you know, and it wasn't – I don't think that's so much of a negative. It was just a one singular thought profession. Find the bad guy, put the bad guy in jail. Arrest your way out of the – yeah, lower crime, crime by simply putting bad guys in jail, and you know, and that is a that is a big part of policing. But it, you know, we have learned since it's not the only part if you're going to be effective. Where uh, when you were graduating, where did you want to go? Oh, Southeast. Oh, you want to go? Oh, why, why is that? Well, you know, you talk to everybody in the academy. You know, uh, it's funny. I did a I did a recruit class yesterday, and uh, it was much different. And what's funny, it's the same class that I was in. You know, they're just facing a different direction. But I think there was 14 in the class. Uh, and we had wow, like that's 40, small. we had like 44 yeah. in ours. I mean, we were, I almost said something you probably have to, we're, we're like butt to butt, you know, uh, in, uh, in our we class. We have an explicit tag. You're good. Okay. <laughs> well, we were like nuts to butts in that yeah. class. I mean, we were elbow to elbow shoved in our class and then they had, they had all, they could have laid out in their class. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I told them, I said, you know, I think we all know that the academy was nothing but a big high school. That's what it felt like, you know. It, there was no no secrets in there. It was nothing going to was going to stay secret very long. Um, so, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I really did. Looking back, I wish I'd have enjoyed it more, appreciated it more, as opposed to just wanting to get the hell out of there because it was fun. You're getting paid, you know, pretty decent to sit in class and have fun with friends and make lifelong friends in there. Well, at the time, I suppose. I mean, I look back at it. Oh. You know, we paid we made twenty six thousand dollars a year. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I thought that was rich. I was like living yeah. good. Yeah. You know. Um, but you're right. You know, nowadays they get paid a very good salary to eight to five weekends off holidays. And you, you just got to pass a test and it's not even passed. You just got to average a 70. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it's real that easy later. now, right? Real easy. It was well, just, I think they, um, like every city, it's so hard to hire, you know, it's almost like you have to really, really mess up to get terminated from from uh you know police departments academies now they just can't afford it and there's positive negatives of that you know but it is what it is it's the world we live in right now so talk about when you got to southeast who who trained you who did you start riding with and and what kind of work did you like well it's funny southeast has got a history of just of of just razzing people you know and so i remember the first familiar with it no yeah when i remember the first day i showed up there's two doors at southeast you know and they're they're magnetic door or locked doors i don't know if they're magnetic but you could only open them from the inside So I went to one side of the door, and I'm waiting there. I'm standing. I got my bag. You know, I'm loaded down. I got my uniforms and my bag and all that. And nobody's opening the door. Everybody's going out the other door, right? So yeah, I'm look, like, look at this guy blocking yeah, this door. What yeah. The, so what I'm, the? yeah, I'm like, what the hell? So I'm like, yeah, okay, well, maybe this door's broke. You know, my dumbass. This door's broke. So then I go over to the other door, and I'm holding all my stuff because, of course, it shuts on me. Well, now everybody goes out the other door and is leaving me standing there. So finally, a supervisor comes by and has a little pity on me and opens the door and lets me in. And I was like, I think I'm at the right place. He goes, oh, no, you're at the right place. 
come on in here and get dressed and get out here and do some work. Welcome to Southeast. Exactly. Uh, great station, though. I mean, it's, it's where I wanted to go. What type of work did you gra- gravitate to, and who, who trained you? Uh, the funniest thing is um, Mark Terry oh. is is kind of – I mean, yeah. I had I had three really good trainers. You know, I, I like to tell recruits, you know, in the academy, look, you're going to have three trainers, and more than likely you're probably going to have two of the three that you really like, right? Um, get what you like from each of them and then create who you want to be, you know. And you might have one that you don't want to be like. Well, now you know who you don't want to be. You know, but I always tell them, if you can make 38, 36, 38 uh, weeks in the academy, you can make seven with anybody. Because, you know, we've had a, we've had officers who have quit on training because they couldn't get along with their trainer. You know, well, I kind of looked at it. That's probably best for them because if they can't get along with a, a jackass that's sitting next to them, they're going to have a real hard time in the field. So it's probably best that they did find their way out. But, um, you know, I had um, one particular trainer that, man – he could cuss. He he would cuss out the Pope. Mm-hmm. He would cuss out the Bill Pope. Bill Maloney? No, no, no. no that would no, – I don't want to go down that road. Um, and, uh, but he knew every general order. He knew every personnel rule. I mean, he really was a great trainer. He was really good at writing reports. He was just he – he just had a mouth on him, you know. Um, and then I had uh, Danny Hallbrook. Which I got a really good story about him, but it's probably not something we can put on the radio. Yeah. By the way, you go ahead and tell it. I'll just edit but, it. Uh, yeah. Okay. So uh, this episode. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. So what? <laughs> what you can put on the air is when he was training me. He, um, like I said, he loved it. He was talking on his phone all the time to his girlfriend, wife, whatever. And Both. he was, yeah. And he was a very excited trainer. I mean, he'd yell at you, and as he's yelling at you, he's got that lisp, and it's just man. It's just all over the side of you, just spit. And you're just you're driving, you can just feel it raining on you. I'm like, this is so nasty. And, you know, and he just keeps yelling at you. He just keeps yelling at you and it just keeps hitting you in the face. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, I'm just waiting. Can we please get to this location faster? Well, I finally got him back unknowingly on St. Augustine. There's a real big dip. And I was a rookie, I didn't know. So I'm humming down this thing at about 65, 70 miles an hour. I hit that. I hit that dip, and Danny's on the phone while we're going code three, yelling at me, spitting on me, but he's on the phone talking oh. to his girlfriend, whatever. And when we hit that dip, man, his head hit that ceiling. I thought I broke his neck. I thought I broke his neck. Did the top go like on Harry and the Hendersons when, when that big Yeah, he looked, like, he, he looked like Dino, man. He just yeah. popped his head through the roof, whatever, man. But, uh, man, he was mad at me, and I swear for weeks he was rubbing his neck. God damn it, my God damn it. Well, you know, the tra- you know, it's funny you mentioned that. The training style back then, and there were some hard-ass trainers that, that literally would that literally would uh, cuss you out. In a and, second. Yeah, and, and, and yell and scream at you. You know, Danny, I mean, you had <laughs> you had some hard trainers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Danny, Danny got kind of beaten down on, on training, but – Hell, Jose Aranda did as our cla- my classmate. There was some he yeah he had a he had a rough he had a rough go. Yeah, it's funny because you'd pull into the Sally Port after just getting whooped down, and you'd look over in the squad car next to you, and someone else is a rookie or was in your class having fun, and they're or or not they're looking the same as you, just beat down because the trainers like take me back to the station right now. I'm just yeah. tired of you. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, or they hey, just drive off and leave you sitting there. Yeah, yeah I heard that the, one too. Yeah. Yeah, and I you know, I mean, in, in, in the on the flip side of that, I had Warren Mitchell also, who is the most professional. Uh, I mean, truly the most professional 
officer I have ever met in my life. From the day that I met him as a, as a trainer to the day he walked out of here and retired, he is the epitome of the most, you know, just his presence and the way he talks. And I always, I always laugh because uh, I used to tease him and call him Soul Train mm-hmm. because when I'm in the car with him, I'm driving, you know, same thing. He's in the passenger seat. And he's talking on the phone. He's real soft. You know, he's talk, he talks like this on the phone where I can barely hear him, right? And he leans over in the side, all lean back talking. And I used to make fun of him. I'm like, man, who are you over there talking to, all soul train and all? And um, um, he used to be in a church band. I don't know if y'all know that. He used to play bass in a church band. Well, he used to date. Um, who's the singer that uh, that broke up the Mav- um Oh, Tony Braxton. Braxton. He dated okay. her? Yes. All right. Wow. And so I'm like, he's talking, talking to her, whatever. And uh, I said, man, who do you talk to all the time, whatever? And he goes, you ain't going to believe me. And I said, okay, who? And he finally went back. And he finally told me, Tony Braxton. I said, man, you like her. You know, she was small. Oh, yeah. You know? And it changed my heart. That's all just going <laughs> in my head, man. And, uh, and, and she was he, like 4'11". I don't know. Yeah. It wouldn't matter. I mean, yeah. what am I, five, yeah. six? You know, bring yeah. it on. No, you hey, know? Hey, tower over. Hey, we, you know, we would have made a four foot two. You right. know? <laughs> but uh, anyway, so he, he's telling me it. Did. I'm like, you're full of shit. You're full of shit. He goes, no. Nah. So next time she calls, he just hands me the phone. And I'm like, is this Tony Braxton? And man, that, she starts singing. that sultry voice hit. And I was like, I almost fell out the car. Just melted right there. And right from there on, I always tease, uh, always tease Warren, you are the smoothest player I've ever met in my life. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, he, he was probably the most influential as far as who I truly wanted to, uh, to imitate as far as, man, he could take the worst throwdown that you show up to family violence. And in three or four minutes, he'd have every woman, woman there swooning by just talking to him, had it all under control. And I said, man, that's, that's the kind of cop I want to be. So you mentioned you almost fell out of the car. Yeah. Um, that brings up an interesting video that I saw one time of an officer in a field. You too, yeah. huh? Yeah. You too. Yeah, I think I think this is a, a pretty viral video at this point of a, <laughs> of a young officer in a Class A uniform chasing down a squad car, or not even a squad car, but diving through the window of a car. It was going through the neighborhood, and it went over the curb and went into the park. Yeah. And then someone supermanned. In uniform, hey, Superman. Can you, the can you tell us what happened on that? Oh yeah, that I man. I was. I mean, we used to have so much fun. I mean, I, I, I truly. You know how people say, you know, you, you couldn't. You know, I'd do this for free. I literally would have done this job for free during those years. I mean, we were having so much, such a good time, and you know, we didn't even realize how dangerous the work we were doing really was. Um, it truly was a cat and mouse game, you know, us catching them. It was the, you know, the black hats versus the white hats, you know, the good guy versus the bad guy, the old cowboy kind of idea, uh, thinking. But anyway, so in that particular, we could still chase cars. We were still, you know, we still could do car chases. And man, this was one heck of a car chase. We were in it and it was going for a long time. It's so long that the, I think it was Fox helicopter, whatever, got above us. And, uh, you know, I, I think Rudolph, it would be Rudolph, I think Rudolph got on the radio and said, hey, just be aware of Fox, you know, there's a helicopter above us and it ain't, it ain't DPD. So anyway, we're going down uh, 175, we get into the projects, and this car is kicking it, so it's just kicking hubcaps off left and right because it's just driving way out. Well, it jumps a curb and it ends up in a uh, playground of the projects, right? And there was kids around. And so... 
um, good or bad or indifferent, whatever, it was so soggy that this wheel started spinning on this car. So it was kind of half stuck, moving, not moving. And so somewhere in between my ears, it seemed like a good idea to uh, jump out of my car jump through the passenger car passenger window of this car that was spinning car spinning car Mm -hmm. jump through the window uh, assess the situation right Mm -hmm. as i did uh deliver some palm heel strikes and some uh departmental approved uh takedown techniques and uh next you know we're dragging everybody out of the windows and uh it's probably one of the coolest things that i've ever done i need to get that because i need to post it uh, whenever we it's we on VHS yeah. I saw it yeah, on VHS, VHS. <laughs> VHS. Yeah. so we're gonna have to convert we'll find it, it. I, got, I got it what's even more amazing is there was never a general order never. made after this no no nothing and, about uh, vehicle pursuits while on foot or anything yeah and you know or entering a moving vehicle a suspect vehicle that's going. So, the, so the problem was though is it's you know it's one of those things when you do something by accident it looks cool as hell right but then when you try to do it don't work out so well no. So I tried to do it again a few weeks later, and I misjudged my jump, and I hit the driver's side door jam right across the top of my head and knocked me smooth out, man. Knocked that hairline all the way back. Man, yeah. it knocked me smooth out. And, you know, Jack Misek was oh, our sergeant at the time. He goes, Captain you, feel real, you feel real stupid now, don't you, dumbass? And like, when I woke up. Yeah. But, I, you know, I, I, remember, feel, I remember hearing that. I could yeah. feel Danny Halbrook in the back of my head going, see, see? Because for weeks I was rubbing the back of my neck. And, right. Um, but, but how uh, cool was it to to catch it on video? Like not not well, somebody's phone video or back then a, a camcorder shaking. It was actually I, a news helicopter. Gotcha. I will say, you know, um, I mean, you always want to see, you always want to feel kind of cool to your peers, you know. And so a lot of people had seen that video, and it it got to the point that in the academy when I started teaching at the academy, um, the recruits had heard about the v, about the video. And so usually I wouldn't show it till the end, till we were like in fourth phase. I would say, okay, I'll show you. And I showed him, I would show him the video um, until our sergeant at the time at the academy, John Lawton, heard about me showing the vehicle or the video. And he he caught me showing it one time after he told me not to show it. Um, And so I kind of got my ass chewed a little bit there, but it was well worth it. You know, me and John go way back. He's a great guy. Oh, he's a good dude. Oh, he's a great guy. So the, the first time I met you, you were instructing at the academy. I don't even remember what you were teaching, uh-huh. but you walked in, and we all had to wear Class A uniforms back then. So, right. uh, my pencil rolls off my desk right as you're walking by, and I bend over to pick up my pencil, and I put it back on my desk, and I'm just sitting there. And you said, "What are you looking at? Are you looking at my boots because they're not shined? No, I work the streets. I work at Southie, and you just gave it to me." <laughs> Just just telling me how bad you were. And I was like, this jerk is just asshole. dressing me down, right? Like, I'm just sitting there. I, I dropped my pencil. I'll do this background. Yeah, no, 100%. Valdez <laughs> uh, got me there. And then you went up and, and finished whatever presentation. I was like, this guy's got to be the biggest jerk on the department. He's probably going to end up my trainer one of these days. Oh, you got it lucky. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been hilarious because yeah. I told you the story then, too. Yeah. But it was wow. it was just one of those. That was the the culture back then. Was you know your your dirty boots at Southeast was kind of a a, 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 badge a of mark honor. of your yeah. your work. Yeah, it, it was. And I think it's funny now because now we have to do line inspections. Right. And I'm like, you know, well, shit, I'm about to leave, so I don't give a shit. You know, <laughs> I just think, you know, here we are trying to increase morale, 
right? We're, 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 why are we beating people down for the littlest of things? I would, you know, is it great to have a good officer presence? Absolutely. But I care more about what comes out of their mouth than what their damn boots look like. You know, and so if we're going to have anything, you know, let's let's worry about the bigger picture problems and stop beating down with the little problems, because it looks like you're just finding something to pick on. Um, we got enough of those you know, problems here on this department. So, yeah, my boots are like gravedigger boots. They're yeah. all filthy and unshaven. But, you know, it, but, you know, people in the community, you know, let's just, you know, they look at your shoes and they know, OK, that's a worker. That's not a worker. Yeah. You, know, you got somebody with the shiny shoes every single day. That's not somebody's going to get dirty, you know. You got you, you got a cop that shows up with a scuffed up boot and whatever, you know. The bad guy who's got his hands on the car, he knows that cat. That cat's going to chase me. Well, <clears throat> how did you get out to the academy? And I'm kind of Danny's Danny's class was the first one. How did you get out there? Why'd you go out there? You know, you know, I'm a street cop for years. Yeah, I was on the street. I was on the street for I think 11 years. Because like the a... rumor was in our classes, you got in trouble and got put out there. Because you were very vocal about not wanting to be out there. No, no, not at all. To be honest with you, to be honest with you, I was at Central, and uh, I was on days uh, with um, uh, the Italian guy uh, Jay Angelino, which I don't know if you know Jay. You yeah, know, know he's Jay. since retired. <laughs> But he's straight out of the straight out of the Bronx. I mean, just you know, just horrible. He let me, he let me get my ass kicked by a crackhead female one time, and just sat there watching me. Come on, Mike, show me some of that DT shit you do, whatever. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> laughing at me, you know, in a in a in a good fella's voice, or whatever. But great guy. But anyway, um, I was at Central, and they didn't have they didn't have anybody to be the the uh, advisor for this new class, and so. Um, Sergeant came up to me and said, hey, Mike, you know, you're kind of low man on the totem pole. You know, we need somebody to go out there. And I was like, well, you know, okay, it's weekends, you know, eight to five weekends off. You know, I was like, man, all right, I'll give it a try, you know. So I, I did. I went out there kind of reluctantly. It wasn't for any trouble or anything like that. Um, but I tell you what, as soon as I got out there, um, I figured real quick that this was, this was my niche. I, I think I really enjoyed it. You realize that right away? Yeah, I really did because, you know, um, and I will say this, um, you know, I, I think maybe it was a little bit of break breakout day, right? And um, and I'm watching, you know, obviously they, they used to do it different than, than how I did it. But um, I, I just kind of got into the fact that, look, I'm, I'm looking at a room of, you know, 40 people that have no idea what they're getting into from completely all different walks of life completely different beliefs completely different and then we're shoving them all in a room and it was different when i was one of them to when now i'm watching somebody else and um you know i kind of said like you know hey i think i kind of might like this thing and you know so much so is that i was an advisor and uh, the staff there were like mike you know can you help us out because you know we don't have a lot of instructors you know and i had already taken the instructor uh and the instruct the uh, peace officer instructor course so I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a try. And it, it just, it, I just caught on to it. I enjoyed it. And so about halfway through, man, I really, really thought, you know, I started getting more involved in the DT room um, because I, you know, this is the biggest thing. I wanted the class to respect me and not so much respect me because they liked me, but I wanted them to respect me because I was willing to do everything they were doing. If I'm going to yell at you to do something, then I'm going to be willing to do it too. So 
you know, when they would dress out, I would dress out. And I would see other advisors just kind of stand on the wall. And I'm like, no, no, because I knew I wasn't going to be the fittest guy. I wasn't going to finish first, but I sure as shit wasn't going to be last. And so I just started doing things with them. And, you know, I, I think it made the class come together better. It, it definitely, I got to know them better. I think they respected me a little bit more. So when I did have to get on them, you know, I, I think they took it a little bit better. Yeah. So, Kent, your first time meeting Mike, imagine that every day for the first three or four months. Yeah, it was. I was rough. He, he came on actually a little later. We started the academy class, and then I think he came on like two months later. Yeah, somebody bailed for so, some reason. Yeah, so you were thrown in. So the the vibe we got the whole time was you didn't really want to be there necessarily, but you were going to do it, and you let us know you were from Southeast. And yeah. So you talk about respect, but I think at the beginning there was a lot of people who were just kind of put off, but there was respect. Yeah. And you talk about those things that you did, and it was funny to see the change over time. We realized you were being a hard ass on us because you actually did care. Yeah. And it was almost like everyone changed, including you in that academy class, but by the end... We really felt like you were family with us, and I think we all cared that you were proud of us for graduating. Like we wanted to earn your approval at the end. Oh, absolutely! I mean, I'm gonna be honest with you. I, I uh, every class I had after that, because I um, they actually offered me a position at the at, at the academy um, after I finished with them. Um, I compared every class I had after that to my first class. Um, because we had, a, we, had a, we had a very smart class, and we had a very athletic, yeah. for the most part, class. A lot of experience in the military. Yeah, yeah, it, was a lot, a, it was a good class. It was one of our. It's one of the first classes that had a huge bump in military, you know, people in it. Um, and so, you know, it was almost like, um, you know, usually you have. It used to be like when I came through, we had one or two military guys, and everybody else was civilian. Well, now it was starting to get more heavy military, and you, which was good because it kind of got the civilians to kind of think that paramilitary form yeah, of rank and structure uh, of, of rank order. and file that you know you had to have. Um, so uh, again, I love that class, man. I had a great time with them. Uh, you know, yeah, it, I, yeah. I guess I was a little bit rough in the beginning, and I guess, <clears throat> I guess maybe because I just saw them as soft. To be honest with oh, you, oh yeah, oh yeah, I, we knew that too. And I'm gonna be honest with you, I probably, I probably went there a little too early in my career, maybe, because I was still a little, um, you know, you're never gonna be good enough like us kind of mentality. I think know? we kind of brushed over some stuff that we need to get back to also. Okay. Um, the type of work that you were drawn to early in your career. Yeah. Um, I remember distinctly busting calls out as fast as I could. In order to and go play? No, not to, in order so that other people could go play, right? right? Because I was still new, and that was my job was to shut up and go answer their calls so they okay. could do stuff. But somebody had the audacity to send out the citywide message or the channel-wide message of, hey, go ahead and knock all these calls out. Fat boy needs to eat. <laughs> and and back then, you could see how many calls somebody had answered. And I look up, and it's Mata. And I was like, this guy hasn't answered a single call all day. And the audacity <laughs> he has... Like to say it's like four hours into the shift. He's been in a bush somewhere chasing, <laughs> chasing dope dealers. Probably and went he to jail up, three times already. It was the <laughs> most hilarious thing in the world, though, because he would do this regularly where yeah. he was like, hey, you guys go ahead and knock out all these calls so I can go eat. And I was like, oh, man, I can't wait till I got the moxie to pull that off. Well, you know, and, and yeah, I guess getting back to the work, you know, when I got to Southeast, I, I got uh, in with a bunch of really, really good guys, Klingle Smith um phil elliott dale ball uh, dale ball and they were already dope chasers you know and that just intrigued me 
you know, because, and they liked me. And I'll be honest with you, they already told me. They told me when they first asked me to come over, they wanted me because I could run. And I could run. I was pretty fast for being, you know, short. I was pretty fast, but I could run for a long time. And I ran in college. And so, um, you know, I could chase somebody down. They may not out, they may not outrace me, but I'll run them. So I'll get them eventually. So that's what they wanted me to do. They would stay in the car in circle while I chase the guy and get on the radio until we end. So that was my job. I was the chaser, and then I fit in most windows because I was a little guy. So, you know, there wasn't a window I pretty much couldn't fit through, you know. So uh, we were in a uniform uh, a drug task force. It's called the 3080s. And what was really funny is my class and John's class were really close together. And so a, a lot of the uh, recruits that were in my class ended up in the 4040s uniform drug task and John's class also in the 4040s. And so the 3080s was southeast and the 4040s was southwest. And we would often – uh, you know, cross the line on each other's, you know, poaching on each other's uh, sectors. Yeah, like hitting, we didn't have enough on our own. Yeah, hitting dope houses to where I remember several times we were both watching the same dope house, but we were on different channels. So I'm watching it, you know, and I see all these cops running on the house, and I'm like, I didn't say run, and it wasn't us. It was the 4040s, <laughs> and they did the same, you know, we did the same thing to them. But, um, yeah, the border right there was pretty uh, – yeah, Pretty I mean nasty. 8th Street. I mean, there was a lot of drug houses down Vermont, there. Vermont. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, um, y- you know, we did great work. I'm going to tell you that. I mean, I-, I can't even tell you. I remember they put us in for a citation one time because we took like 400 and something guns off the street in one year um, and a lot of drugs. Um, but, I, you know, I, I told this to Phil uh, Elliott because he's on our board. Um, I'm amazed still to this day that over the three and a half years that we were doing that, we never shot anybody and nobody ever got shot. I don't even think, I don't even remember anybody really getting hurt. Well, you, you know, I, I think Pat Starr and I talked about this, we talk about this often, that we would hit people so hard and so fast, they didn't have time to react. And what? I think we got on top of them uh, before they, they had a chance to, there's the something to fight. be said for that definitely yeah, yeah. on the speed you know, the shock and the surprise. And, yeah. and you know but also think I think it was a different mindset too I think you had bad guys who weren't about killing people you if know they fought it, you they were trying to get away well it was a yeah. game to them. Yeah. it was a, it was just a game to them you know they knew at some point selling drugs they were going to get caught and when it, when they got caught they got caught now they ran and we had to chase him but you know they weren't either even though there were guns around I don't you know nobody really went for the gun you know, they really just got up and either one, we had to fight them or two, they ran. Um, and maybe that, I think that probably built a little too much confidence in, uh, you know, hitting the houses like we did. But, um, you know, it, it, we did something very, very dangerous. But I will say this. I promise you, we made those neighborhoods way safer by taking that criminal element out of there um, because it, it was it was off the chain. For a long time, I mean, it was it would not be anything out of the ordinary to uh, go to jail three or four times a night, solid on nothing but drug arrests. Well, we would hit like a location in our house, and then like four or five different two uh, two man elements would take people to jail. Yeah. So you would go, you take multiple people to jail from one incident three or four times a night. Right, and the remaining people, the squad, would just go to the next. They go to find another place. Yeah. Yeah. It's um. And, you know, and it was well supported by the, the command staff because we, we – They liked the numbers. They loved the numbers. And they knew that there was that criminal element that you had to get off the street. They were killing these neighborhoods. 
Um, and we were willing to do it or stupid enough to do it. I don't know however you look at it, but we were really good at it. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, it was great work. It, it, it really did make me, I think, to who I was. So at the academy, yeah, you went through San Antonio's academy. Yeah. And you went through Dallas's academy. Right. Did you take any influence from San Antonio when you came over to – to actually teach at the academy? I think so, and, and and I think that's kind of maybe where the beginning of that came. San Antonio was very, very, like I said, they they model after DPS. Um, they literally beat the hell out of you. Um, and, you know, and I, I mean, I see some, you know, purpose in that to harden you up, you know, because you got to think about troopers. They're by the, they're all by themselves in the middle of nowhere. So you got to, you know, they did, focused a lot on boxing, a lot on boxing. Um, because uh, most of the time you're on your own. You got to hold your you got to hold your weight in a whole county. Yeah, and it might take a while for somebody to get to you. And so um, again, it was very very physical in San Antonio. Um, they would literally put you in a pit, and uh, so it was a pit, and you put drop you in the pit. And uh, the first time they would put uh, one person against you, and you had to hold your gun. You know, and the only thing you couldn't do, you couldn't punch in the face and the groin and the throat. Other than that, it was free for all. It's reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> And so they put three people on you for 30 seconds. Then they pulled one out. Then they had two people on you for 45 seconds. And then they pulled one out. And then they put another one on you for a minute. And that is the longest 30, 45 minute you've ever had in your life. Because, you know, you're just, all you're doing is just curling up and holding on. Um, and that's where I got my notes broke. But, um, you know, it was very, very, very uh, strenuous. And then I got here and I thought that's how dallas was going to be and it wasn't i mean it was you know you ran a lot you did a lot of you know push-ups and burpees and all that mess but they didn't they didn't really teach you how to really defend yourself i remember mike putting on the red suit even though that wasn't his job and wrestling us yeah yeah for the listener that's a red man and basically red suit of pads head to toe where you and play the bad guy. You play the bad guy, and you right. basically just do scenarios the and you fight the rookies. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and I think um, I think some of that came from the 3080s because, like I said, I mean, we had to fight a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, and I, I think I just came from the perspective that uh, it would be very difficult for me to lose somebody that I trained. So, you know, if, if somebody uh, out of Kennedy's class, you know uh, – got killed i would feel somewhat responsible that maybe i could have done something more and so i was kind of hard on them um but i tell you what every single officer that left that academy out of that class i pit them against any any class in the academy that they will hold their own um and i was very confident of that and they've all done an amazing amazing job on this department now bob owens was out at the academy when you were there right oh man i love me some bob he's got a, a reputation on this department that is second to none to none. Um, how what? How did he influence you out there? How, what did you learn from him? Well, he was all business. And um, what I loved about him is, you know, we had just gotten out of that college kind of atmosphere, which to me ruined the academy. And so that was the whole purpose, I think, why he got sent there. We needed to get back to tactical, teaching people how to survive and teaching people tactical redress and aggress, you know. And so his military training – his SWAT training, he fit right into that. And he believed, obviously, in a rank-and-file, chain-of-command form of uh, leadership. And that, that's what had been lost at the academy. So um, I really, really enjoyed working for Bob. 
um, he, he called me in one time because we had a female who she was injured and um, real bad ankle break. And then she got recycled and she got healed. We brought her back and she was in my class and we were doing over and under. Y'all remember that? Where you going? And it's um, it's pretty taxing. And, uh, you know, um, we per- we try to pair people up with somebody reciprocally who's close to the same size. We, we didn't very often put a huge guy on a small person. Um, but her being a female, any male was going to kind of outweigh her. And so, you know, we were doing this and we had already been, you know, doing DT for a while. Anyway, you know, as you get tired, you lose your fine motor skills and you lose concentration. Well, snap, there goes that ankle again. And I felt horrible, man. I felt horrible. And, uh, you know, I went in to tell Lieutenant that, you know, we had an ambulance come in, blah, blah, blah. You know, she got sent off. The next day I come back and, you know, um, I was just, I was a little down about it because I felt personally responsible. You know, I should have kept a better eye on her. I should have had her with somebody else, whatever. Um, and Bob came up to me, you know, Lieutenant K. Owens came up to me and he said, Mike, let me tell you something. He said, to make a good omelet, Every once in a while, you got to crack an egg. And uh, it was pretty simplistic, but he, he's right. You know, those things are going to happen. If you're really, really training people, accidents are going to happen. And unfortunately, sometimes it happens to some really good people, and that just happened to be with her. Anyway, um, he, he was great. He was great, and he brought a lot of, you know, innovation. Or, well, he already uh, had SWAT. <clears throat> he was commander over narcotics and SWAT for years before yeah, that. So he yeah. was so respected by everybody. He, he understood the tactical mindset. And, you know, we had gotten away from allowing, from calling officers warriors. Man, that burned my ass when we went, when we got away from that. Because, yes, but there is a point in your career that you're going to have to be a warrior. You've got to have that survival mindset. Uh, and he brought back that warrior mindset he brought rbt into the program you know he brought a lot of more hands-on practical especially at the at the range and uh you know his buddy uh, transu man they were peas and carrots because they had the same mindset and they, they really did amazing things what was your biggest takeaway from for you your personal growth up being out there you know i really um i'm gonna be honest with you so i, I am gonna be a reserve and um, I told Chief Garcia, I, I don't want to answer calls anymore. I've done all that. I want to go back to the academy, um, and I want to teach. And it's not going to be in the DT room. The back of these are shot. But I want to go back and teach uh, these recruits because um, I think I have a different perspective now. You know, um, Not so much that I think I'll teach better. I think I'll teach different. And um, it's definitely a different recruit now than we had there's different wants and needs, you know, with us, it was all about, you know, making a paycheck and overtime and, you know, um, you know, making a good living, you know, trying to provide now that they're making a, a, a pretty good salary. It's not about money anymore. It's about time. And I can respect that. I mean, they're, you know, when we came in, we came in 23, 24 year old rookies. Most of us weren't married. We didn't have any hard debt, you know. It, the cost of college wasn't like it is today. Well, now you've got people coming in, you know, out of the military, already married, already have kids. They're 28, 29, 30 years old. And for them, it's more about time. They want to be home with their families as some form of being home with their families. And the problem is this profession isn't built that way. And I think, and I've had this conversation with Chief Garcia, you know, we have got to find a way whether it's through, uh, you know, a rotation of shifts or something like that to allocate more of a 
uh, lifestyle that's appealing to these families or we're not going to hire anybody. You know, and it's not just DPD. It's it's every major city is having a problem hiring people because it's just not a profession that people gravitate to anymore. I think a lot of it is because of their families. Did you promote straight out of the academy? Uh, no, no. Um, I, so, you know, then it was, you know, five to seven years before a test came. So the first test that I was, uh, that I was, uh, you know, eligible for, I was in the 3080s. I didn't want to leave, man. I was having such a good time. I was learning so much by making so many arrests. Um, so I skipped that one. So I didn't promote till like to senior corporal till I had six years on, seven years on. And then I didn't promote to sergeant till I had, you know, 13 years on, 14 years on. Yeah, 3080s, Mike Mata didn't want to be a sergeant. No. Yeah, so what, what changed your mind there? Why did, why did you promote to sergeant? You know, I mean, it got to the point that um, – I just wanted, I needed something different. You know, you can only run and gun like that for so long. And so many people who had brought me in had kind of moved on. And, um, and, you know, I'm, you know, I wanted to train, to be honest with you. I really didn't want to be a trainer. Um, you know, and I tell this to people all the time who promote and don't want to train. I say, hang on a second. Do you think you're a good cop? You know, they'll always say yes. Well, how do you think you got that way? Somebody had to show you how to be a good cop. You owe it to the department to do the same thing to people behind you. If you're not willing to do that, then why the hell did you take the test? You know, so um, I wanted to train and and I'm glad I did because managing people is the hardest thing to do, whether it's, you know, here on the department or now in my new career, it really is just managing people and learning how to communicate. And the first step in that is communicating with the person that sits next to you that maybe you don't quite get along with. And you got to find a way to get these instructions through their head um, and get them to understand why you're doing it. You know, I've erased many a report to piss off many of a recruit because how many times do I have to tell you to do it this way? Now, when you get off training, you can do it however the hell you want to do it. But my name will be on this first. I'm the one who's going to have to testify to it first. So you're going to write it my way. Um, and that, that was hard for some people to, to accept. And, and eventually they did, or you know, we didn't, we didn't leave that parking lot. So the senior corporal one, I, I get like pretty much everybody in the department should promote to senior corporal, but what made you go to Sergeant? Um, that really was that, um, I was tired of, um, of saying things need to change. We need to have better leadership and then not doing it. You know, because, I mean, I was I was in great positions. I was in, you know, major crimes at the time, uh, working undercover, had a lot of freedom, had worked for a great sergeant uh, who was um, Ruben Ramirez at the time. And so, you know, I couldn't ask for a better place. But, you know, that opportunity came and I said, you know, um, got to stop bitching about everything broke if I'm not willing to fix things. And I do believe that sergeant is the most important rank on this department. Um, and it needs to be treated that way. And then we need to promote the right people um, because ultimately sergeants can ruin a career for somebody or they can save a career for somebody. So is that why you got involved with the DPA also? Yeah, be honest with you. You know, um, so, uh, you know, me and Glenn White, we had a love-hate relationship. Um, you know, look, the police department was, has, has evolved and has changed. <clears throat> And uh, the association needed to evolve and change. And it was stuck. You know, uh, Glenn was the president for almost 16 years. 
that's way too long for anybody to be in any leadership role, period. And so, you know, even if you're a great leader, you know, you need a constant change of voice and vision, right? And so um, I didn't agree with the fact that you could cuss somebody out on a Tuesday and then turn around and try to be friends with them and get something from them on a Thursday. You can't do that anymore. And so when I had heard that he was retiring, um, I was already working within the Assisty Officer Foundation. So I'd already kind of been around and seen things. Um, and when I heard he was retiring, um, uh, Fred Frazier came up to me and said, hey, you know, would you possibly think about being on the e-board? And I said, you know, everybody else I think I kind of saw somewhat eye to eye with. There was no major clashes with. I didn't know Ron real well, but um, I knew Ron was not that in your face, you know, cuss you out New Yorker that, that Glenn was, which there was a time for that. So I don't take anything away. He did amazing work here. The DPA got a lot of things done and there was a different mindset you had to have at that time. Well, again, things change. And so the DPA needed a more um, even keeled kind of voice um, because, you know, maybe we didn't serve all the department like we should have been doing. I mean, that's that you got to take some ownership in that, you know, and, and I, I own that as, as president of this organization. I got to own the history, too. But that didn't mean I couldn't change it. So uh, that's when I jumped on the e-board. Speaking of uh, the Dallas Police Association, we've talked about it before, but it's been around since 1959. Yeah. It was started by officers. And at that time, it was the only association. Right. For officers. And it, it's since evolved. I didn't I didn't realize Glenn had was president that long that is a long time it's a long time yeah um so when did you you're you become a vice president at one point you're on the e-board and then you just got involved go higher and climb it uh, and become a vice president well um you know i was the vice president and unfortunately uh be honest with you what kind of pushed me uh, i was already uh, you know ron didn't really like being on tv um he didn't like uh public speaking a lot. And so um, I was already doing uh, officer-involved shootings, all critical incidences. I was already handling those things. Um, I think mostly because teaching at the academy, I was very familiar with general orders, personnel rules, and all that. And so um, Ron kind of steered me in that direction. So doing that, I became pretty friendly with most of the command staff, had a good relationship with all of them. Um, I was on TV a couple times and then, uh, you know, the, the worst day, worst day in this department's history, uh, seven, seven happened. And, uh, I almost, uh, was the, you know, the mouthpiece for not just the DPA, but DPD was having me do a lot of the spots that either they couldn't do because of maybe political pressure or so they would call me and say hey mike would you mind speaking with this media or speak with that media um i suppose because they just liked what i was doing and so um i think that's kind of what pushed me to the forefront a little bit um and then ron uh said mike i i I think you're the next guy and i was i ain't gonna lie i was shocked i was shocked because i wasn't ready for that you know i didn't think i was the next guy i just thought i was did you did you always feel comfortable speaking in front of the cameras no, because you, no. you looked like it. No, I think I think again. I think that's what I got from the academy. 
You know, I learned how to speak in front of people. You know, you start with a smaller group and you get a bigger group and you get a bigger group. And and then um, you just ignore the camera. You just start talking like you're talking to people. Because it it did actually feel weird for me to see my class advisor up there on TV speaking to all of Dallas. You know, it's just not something I pictured you being the type of person. And all of a sudden there you were. And not only that, but doing well at it. Oh, trust me. My mom would call me. Where did you, where the hell do you learn how to do that? I, I, I don't know. You know, um, you know, I think that I think one of the toughest parts going through seven, seven that that had on me was that doing all the media and all that. I don't think I had a time to grieve. I never had a time to really, you know, uh, understand what Mm -hmm. we were going through. And I remember and I don't know if y'all remember, you know, I'm a little embarrassed about it, but not so much. You know, when we had the service on City Hall, man, I lost it. I lost it. I mean, I had never cried before over the deaths, you know, and I had, I, you know, I had talked to some of these, you know, um, you know, a name that I can't say to be named. You know, we, we rode together for, a, you know, quite a few years. Yeah. And um, and so I had, a you know, an emotional attachment to him, um, a strong emotional attachment to him and his family. And then, you know, Mike Smith, you know, I actually talked to him before he died. I mean, he told me he was going to, I mean, he, they wheeling him in, he's sitting up and he, I see him, you know, and he says, Mike, just, you know, tell Heidi, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. I said, yes, sir. I'll tell her, man, you're going to be okay. You know? And then he, he dies, you know? And, uh, you know, I was just, you know, just flabbergasted over it. And so when we did that, um, memorial vigil, at, the candlelight vigil yeah, at city hall, uh, Man, I was up there, and I don't know what tripped me. Man, I lost it, and I just could not stop. And I was trying to man up, man. Uh, I remember telling myself in the head, you know, get your shit together, Mike. And I just couldn't. I couldn't. Um, and I think I think that helped or whatever. But even to this day, it just uh, it's 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 the hardest. And it wasn't one day. And that, I think that's the kicker. It wasn't one day. It wasn't two days. Man, it was weeks. months. Yeah, weeks and that months. We were, you know, we, we were like we were going to another burial or, or we were going to another, uh, you know, mourning. And, and, and that's the only thing that really um, is tough on me is it's like every year we have to rip the Band-Aid off again, right? And I remember a few years ago, the city was like, uh, the department was like, okay, what are we going to do for this year, this year? And I told them, you know what, guys, maybe we don't do anything. I said, do we ever stop to think about what we're doing to the families? You know, they feel obligated to show up to yeah. these ceremonies because we're, you know, honoring their fallen. But are, are, what are we putting them through? Because I know what it's doing to me, you know, and it doesn't mean that I don't love them as much now as I did then. But what I'm saying is not only are we doing it to the spouses, but what are we doing to the children? Are we really doing it for them? Or are we doing it for us? And I remember uh, talking to some of the command staff, and, and, and they agreed. And so we kind of toned it back. And instead of asking them to attend, we asked them, do you want to even attend? And if you don't, it's okay. It's okay to say no. And some of them did. And, and, and I still feel bad for some that didn't because I think maybe they felt like they had to be mm-hmm. there. And I don't think it was right for us to do that. So I, I'm glad that we still acknowledge the day. But then again, what do you say to the other 80-something people on the Walls family? We don't honor them every year either. And so, you know, do, are their loved ones any less than, than what we have now? 
other than the seven seven? No, I don't think so. And so again, are we insulting them in their memories? So you, well, I think we got to be careful that we look completely at the whole picture and not just what makes us feel good today. Did you ever go to any of the funerals? Yes. Okay. I yes. was wondering if you did being the official mouthpiece almost for the department. I no. Did, I, did you stop enough to actually take time to go to those funerals? I went to every one. Uh, went to every uh, candlelight vigil. Um, every cemetery. Everyone. Yeah. Everyone. And since I've been president, I've been to every one. Um, you know, a lot of people don't understand uh, that, you know, when an officer dies and, you know, because we represent, you know, roughly 87% of the department, <clears throat> the, the likelihood that the, if somebody dies in line of duty, they're going to be one of our members. And um, some folks don't know that we give an assistance check to the family the very next day. And it's, it's, it's pretty sizable. And, you know, other organizations say they do it, but they don't. We're the only ones that do it. And, um, you know, some folks would think that it's just easy to hand somebody a check. It's, uh, you know, you're looking at these families, you know, this spouse, you're looking at this wife or this husband, and you're just seeing a, somebody who's completely crushed. Just, you know, just they're voided. You can look right through their eyes. They don't even know what's going on, right? And then you hand them this check, and, um, and it's not so much the amount. I mean, the, the amount is one thing, but it takes that – it takes that uh, that worry immediately off their back of how am I going to pay my mortgage, how am I going to pay these bills, you know, what, where are we going to live, and when they get that check, you know, then they're allowed to grieve. You almost can see the glass come off their eyes, and they, you know, they take a huge sigh of relief that they can actually, you know, grieve their loss, um, you know, and, and and that, and I carry that, I carry that too, and 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 you know, it's just I guess a responsibility. Uh, that comes with the position um, because I've done, I think, 33. So we've talked to a lot of those people either on the show or, or privately, uh, and none of them has ever said anything about the check, but every one of them has mentioned Mike Mata. So well, I appreciate be, that. be proud of that. I do. I, I, I appreciate that. that. That makes me feel pretty good. Well, I mean, you know, these families, uh, I, I can't even just think of what they go through for the rest of their life. It, it never stops. It never ends, you know, especially when you have, you know, parents that are so involved with their kids and, and they had littles, you know, what do you, what do you tell a three-year-old, you know? And then when they're 13, what do you tell them? You know, they're, when they're, you know, um, and, and that's another reason why, you know, I've chose to retire is that, <clears throat> like I said, my dad never got to see me have kids and, uh, that's not going to be me. You know, I've had a little bit of health issues. And so, you know, the doctor said pretty much if you just don't change your lifestyle, you're going to, you're going to stroke out within no, three pe to five. People need to sleep, Mike. That's, that's yeah. proven. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. No yeah. Mike, it's not just the line of duty deaths and, and just showing up, uh, to give a check. You show up when there's major injuries, whether there's illness, there's an officer involved shooting, yeah. any major incident, man, you're, you're showing up to scenes middle of the night. Yeah. You're going out there for these families. And I remember, uh, sitting with the Pentons. Uh, she was saying, Mitchell was like, oh, if something happens, Mike Mata is going to be in my living room. And Kathy was saying, it was surreal. Here's Mike Mata. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, I've, I've given about 33 checks, whether on duty or off duty. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of them hit me. Uh, Penton, um, he actually worked for me. He was my troop. And, um, you know, I feel bad. I feel a little responsible. 
um, because I wasn't there that night. I had took that night off. And um, I feel responsible a little bit in two ways. One, he was my troop, and I had a responsibility to safeguard him. Um, I feel a little responsible also because the sergeant that covered for me on that call, he's carrying a lot of, of guilt because, you know, he told me, and I said, look, Sergeant, somebody, you were going to have to put somebody on that freeway at that tail end. Either it was them or it was you. Somebody, that's your job. You have to control the scene, you know. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, it was, it, was, it was Mitchell. But if it wasn't Mitchell, it was going to be somebody else. We were going to lose somebody that day because the, the drunk didn't change. You know, and so, um, but having to, uh, having to go see the Pentons and look them in the face, uh, you know, other than, uh, Aaron's and, uh, Smith and, and the others from the seven, seven, um, because, you know, seven, seven, not only did I know some of them and work with some of them, the other ones I trained in the Academy. So you, I've never had a situation that I've known every single person, seven, seven, knew them all. Um, and then Mitchell, him working for me, you know, other officers that had died in the line of duty, I knew of them and maybe I had met them, but maybe I didn't like have a bond with them. Um, but seven, seven and Mitchell, I, I definitely had a bond with them. And, um, and I think the fact that, that she was pregnant and had a small baby, uh, that was tough too. That was real tough. That's a lot of grief, Mike, to absorb. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's a lot. Oh yeah, I got years of therapy coming. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> yeah, and then and then just the the toll in your family. Yeah, you're having you're they're grieving as well. You have you have a loss of you know a lot of duty death. They know what you have to go do, what right. you are doing, right? And then they're grieving as well. Right. You're taking a lot of time. You've had because of the commitment. You've you've done a lot for this department and the officers. But, you know, I mean, you, you're one of your reasons you're leaving is because you want to be there for your family. Yeah, I, uh, I have not been the best husband and the best father, uh, you know, the last 10 years. And, you know, God bless my wife. She stuck it out with me. And, you know, there's a couple of times I wasn't sure she was, you know, she uh, she's got a lot of patience. Um, you know, she had every right to leave me a couple of times, you know, because I wasn't there. You know, I did put the department and the, and the membership ahead of my family. Um. You know, it was not going back to 7-7 again, but my daughter's birthday is on that day. And so, you know, we were going to have this big party, and it it took that away. And so, you know, when your kid's, you know, nine years old or eight years old, she don't understand that, you know. And so, um, you know, I've had to make that up. But, you know, getting called out, you're right. I didn't feel right. Um, So a lot of people say, you know, Mike, why did you work the streets? Because you, we do have the opportunity here as a president of an organization, you can take business leave and not work. And I chose to continue working, um, probably to the detriment of my health there, a little bit insanity, because, you know, I would work 16-hour days. Um, but I thought it was necessary. I mean, how do you, leap, how do you lead an organization where the majority, you know, like 60% of your membership are working the streets every day? How do you sit there and, know, and say, I know what you're going through. I can represent you when you're not doing what they're doing. How do you understand that? You can't. And so I felt that I owed it to them and to be taken seriously, not just by them, but by the rank and file and the command staff that, you know, they saw me at jail. They saw me doing traffic stops. They saw me doing the same work as everybody else. Um, and again, I, I, I chose to, to put that in front of my family. 
and um you know i've done it for over 10 years and you know most of that on deep nights and you know that ain't healthy in itself but to work deep nights and then work here during the day and then try and get about four or five hours sleep and then doing it all over again and then the call outs you know it's it's uh it's it's taking a little bit of a toll there's a cost to everything definitely and i think I think anyone who sees someone doing a good job or devoting so much to it knows that somewhere they're paying a price on the other end. So I would I would think that everyone would look at you and know that you deserve your retirement. You yeah. deserve to have this off, and your family deserves it too. I appreciate that. I, uh, last week I was I was in a position that I had three days. I actually got ten hours of sleep each day. And I was telling uh, the guy that was with, he was like, felt like a different person. I was like, you know, when the last time I had 10 hours of sleep, I didn't even know that was, I was capable of that. I didn't know it's possible. Uh, Much less three days in a row. Uh, It was pretty awesome. Um, And so I said, you know, I I might kind of like this second career gig. You know, it's going to take something to get used to slowing down. I am definitely going to miss the rank and file, you know, even, uh, and then that's one thing, you know, folks were like, Mike, you didn't have to be present. You could have stayed and no, I couldn't have, because I know me. I know people would still call me, and I would still help them because that's just who I am, right? And that's not fair to the not, the next guy who comes behind me as president. That's taking the legs out from underneath them. They need to be president. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like when you're done being president, you probably got to move on. All right, Mike, I want to get into the uh, the pension. Yeah. You talked a little bit about it earlier. Yeah. Uh, tell us Tell us your role in that. Well, that's another thing I just, you know, walked into when the keys were handed to me. Um, you know, we had a huge pension issue. Um, you know, it's tough because I'm on both sides of the, uh, you know, I feel both sides of the uh, of the problem here. You know, we have retirees who were sold. They were sold a plan. They were promised this is what you're going to get when they were hired, whether it was going to be in the drop or it was going to be a cola or whatever. And then they turn around and take it from them. So, I mean, I can see how they're like, wait a minute, that they that's an earned benefit. The problem is, is we've had no court to actually define what is an earned benefit other than your actual monthly stipend that, that you get. On the other hand, you know, a pension is what it is. And I, I don't I'm not saying it's illegal, but just so people understand it, it's a Ponzi scheme. I mean, you have to to pay the people at the top. You have to have people you know, putting in in the bottom. And those people at the bottom are hoping as they move up, more people are putting in at the bottom that they're going to have something later too. So, um, you know, I also want to look at at the retirees who are rightfully mad. They should, they got every right to be mad. But I also want to say, well, who do you think's funding this? It's the younger officers that are now paying 96% of their own pension is self-funded throughout their career. That's crazy. There's nothing left to give. And so, you know, I know a lot of people, you know, being the older cats are, are, are mad at me because, you know, I had to go to Austin and I had to make a deal because if not, the state was going to take it over and it was not going to be pretty if the state was going to take it over. I mean, you think about it, there's a hundred and I think there's 121 public pensions. Do you think they care about Dallas? You're just, you're just one of them. And they're going to do whatever's necessary to, you know, stabilize it. And if that means huge cuts all the way across, that's what's going to happen. You're not going to like that. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, we tried to make some changes here and, it, and the, the vote failed. And it, it, it's, it's still one of my biggest regrets because I went to everywhere I could go to try to convince people, 
past this because you would still had a cola. Now, it would have been 1%, 1.5% 1 from 4, but at least you still have it. Because I warn people, once you lose it, it will not come back. And that's where we're at. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, four, four years ago, we had to do a, a pension. I don't want to say a pension fix. It was a pension fix for today. Um, we have improved, you know, quite a bit as far as funding line, not as much as we wanted to because of COVID, you know, kind of put a halt to that. Um, and because we haven't been able to hire a lot of people, you know, although there's more money going in because salaries have increased, that's the only thing God, God, uh, thank God has saved us. But, you know, when you're used to hiring 50 in a class of five classes a year, and now you're having three classes a year, four classes a year of 20 in a class, you know, it doesn't take a math major to figure out, you know, you're losing money going into it. So, um, we are going to uh, Austin to try and fix this thing again. I think ultimately um, the city has finally understood that, that they're going to have to fix this because the, the state has told them, if you want us to fix it, we're not paying for it. You're paying for it. So the state allocates so much money through taxes to the city of Dallas. Well, all they're going to do is reallocate the money that they would be giving them, and they're going to mandate that a huge chunk of it goes to the pension. Yeah, that it gets allocated towards yeah, that. Yeah, so I think the city This is will figured, be in your budget. Yeah, the city is figuring out this is going to happen. You know, you can either do it your way and spread it out over 10, 15 years, or we'll do it our way and we'll get it done in seven. So the question was, can the city not to? No, they're, they're obligated. Uh, the, 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 there's a state constitution which guarantees your monthly stipend. And... Um, the city's going to, the city's on the hook for it. So, you know, the city's saying what well, the state is and the state's saying, well, uh, uh, you are a city funded municipality pension, not a state pension. We have a state pension. You're a municipality funded pension. So are there, are there any other like major departments that are dealing with the same similar issues that what Dallas PD had to deal with their pension? Oh yeah. Oh okay. yeah. Fort Worth's in the problem right now. Um, you know, Austin had a little bit of the problem. Houston was to about six years ago and then they had a huge dump of money into theirs kind of where we're at now um you know most of that was for houston because the city chose to take a holiday and not pay what they should have been paying in uh, the problem with dallas is is dallas has had this problem for well over 25 years and have just kicked it to the next council to the next council you know it wasn't a big problem till it got to be a huge problem well now this council has finally figured out there's no more council to kick it to uh, you know, it's either now or nothing, and the state is forcing them to do what they need to do. So, so do you think Dallas overpromised, or were we on par kind of with everyone else uh, as far as in the country with pensions? No, I think um, yeah, this will piss off the retirees, but that's okay. I'm about to be one. You know, look, police officers have no business, should have had no business running a pension. I mean, we got some police officers can't even balance a checkbook, okay? Uh, and you're going to ask to run a billion-dollar pension? Really? We should have had professionals running this thing from the very get-go, and there never would have been uh, a drop that promised a max at 12, uh, you know, a minimum of eight. I mean, let's let's be honest. In in the 2006, 2007, when the you know when the crash came and everybody was looking at zero or negative from the 401, 457 or investments, the pension was guaranteeing eight percent. How do you do that? Right. Well, no. How did they do that? Because they allowed off police officers and firefighters on that committee, which voted that in because it was self-serving and it was great in the dot com when everybody was making money. Then nobody cared. 
But when it goes down, it didn't go down with the market line in the 10-year yield. So we got stuck paying this amount, and I can't hate on the retirees. It was the rules that were set in. They played by the rules. The problem is we made the rules. And the city, you know, were on that same board. They okayed it. So, you know, everybody's got to take an equal share in this. Well, the officers, we have paid our part of it. We have paid our debt. We cannot put any more money into this. You know, it's time for the city to step up and do their part in owning this. So um, that has since changed. I mean, we still have representatives on the on the board, but instead of having three and four, we have one. You know, fire has one. And then we have professional investors who are on this board and are making sure that we're making sound quality investments. You should never have 35 to 40 percent of your portfolio in real estate. No, never. Not in not in a pension. You know, it should be somewhere around eight. So uh, but that has since been fixed. So, you know, so I don't want anybody to think that I'm leaving because I know something that you don't know in the pensions. You know, no, no. I'm leaving because it's just time, and I'm I'm very confident that this pension's going to be just fine. So yeah, it was eight percent turnaround in perpetuity, and that's not sustainable yeah, forever for for any yeah anything. Yeah, I mean that's it's I mean if, you, if a sane person looks at I mean I've had a lot of financial, you know I have a lot of friends outside that are not cops, and I think every police officer should have more non-police friends than police friends than true police friends, you know, not acquaintances, because it keeps you grounded. And a lot of them are in the finance business, and they're like, Mike, what the hell we are thinking? That, that's that's not survivable long term. And I'm like, yeah, you, man, you you preach to the choir, brother. So, I mean, I wish, I mean, I know everybody in this room wished that we had that same opportunity, but it's not financially feasible uh, when you're talking about a public fit, public vetted pension. Yeah. Somewhere Bernie Madoff is smiling, looking down or looking up, yeah. smiling. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. this say, big Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Saying, hold my beer. Yeah. yeah. So I want to get on another touchy subject. Yeah. With this uh, department is the, uh, the fight to get us pay increase. Yeah, for years we st- we know what we started with and and how how'd that go for you? What role did you, you play? So you started with twenty six, yeah, twenty six thousand, twenty six and change. Oh, what were you, Joe? Yeah, it was around twenty. It was around twenty eight. Yeah. Where were you, Kent? I think it was thirty six. We were big ballers. No, yeah. you weren't. Because I, I came in at thirty two. Then I couldn't tell you. I just knew yeah. that I had so much money I couldn't even yeah. see straight. Yeah. yeah, he could get appetizers before the dinner. At the, at <laughs> Applebee's. You, you want dessert, baby? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chilies. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, big ball. You go ahead. No, I'll take water. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the pay was a big thing, and um, again, we've been fighting this for a long time. Um, and you know, and I had to answer this question a while back. Somebody asked me, you know, Mike, why, you know, why did you get on TV so much? And it really wasn't because I liked getting on TV. People forget this. You cannot have, um, you know, uh, you can't have, uh, I mean, how are you going to regress your your ills against the, you know, against the city council or whatever? Do we strike? No, police officers can't strike, nor should they ever have the ability to strike. Can you imagine if we could strike? I mean, Every time you turn TV on, somebody, some other group of workers are striking, right? And they get this windfall of, of, of you know, of settlement. Um, but, you know, we, unions are illegal in the South, especially in Texas. It's a dirty word to say union. If you notice, uh, even if you take that last article they did on me, Dallas Morning News, they said union boss, you know. Whenever they want to dog me out, it's always union boss, 
you know, whenever something that they like that I'm doing, I'm association president. You know, and I always laugh about that because I've corrected them. I don't know how many times. But anyway, you know, uh, we're not allowed to have unions. Well, if you can't strike, how do you force somebody to come to the table? Well, I got to go to the masses. And I don't like doing it because I, I think it, it puts an ugly face on the profession and, and on, you know, sometimes police officers in general. There's some individuals that think we're a bunch of crybabies and whiners. But, you know, you got to force a hand. And so, like in the pension, in, in, in increase in pay, you know, I had to show up to every city council ma- meeting. I showed up to their community meetings. I showed up to those and fronted them out there. Um, and some in council understood I had a job to do. That was my job to fight for membership and get them better pay. Um, and sometimes I had to do it in very aggressive, in your face kind of ways. Now, I think I was very, dis- very respectful. I never cursed at people. I never yelled at people, never screamed at people. I just killed them with facts. You want to know why we're not hiring? I'll tell you why we're not hiring. You want to know why we're losing 15% of every academy class that graduates? I'll tell you why. You know why we're losing, you know, uh, a large percentage of officers that are five years or less? Do you want to know why we lost almost 100 officers to Fort Worth in less than a year or 13 months? Because of the pay, stupid. You know, it ain't that hard to figure out. And so uh, eventually it did, uh, you know, uh, I think it did get in there. And a lot of that was due to, I'll be honest, you know, Chief Garcia had a lot to do with that. And and I'll give kudos where kudos is. Even Chief Hall, you know, said, you know, I can only do with what I got if you're not willing to do give me more to work with. So uh, we beat him up enough. And, um, you know, John Fortune, kudos to him. I'll give to the first meeting I had with John Fortune when he came over as assistant city manager. He looked at our pay scales. He said, I don't know how the hell you keep anybody. And that was the first I ever heard of a city manager or assistant city manager even admit that. And he says, we're going to fix this. And to his word, we did. So huge shout out to John Fortune. Some people don't care too much for him. He is a man of his word. Moving on to another touchy subject with mm. in something you're neck deep in, <clears throat> the activists. Mm, they love me. Yeah, they love yeah. you. Yeah, Let's talk about me. it. Well, um, you know, I'm – not real big in the council culture. I mean, I don't give a shit. You can say whatever you want to say. I mean, what more are you going to do to me? You know, um, you know, look, I'm the first one to admit to say, are there bad cops? Absolutely. There are, are there bad cops within city, the Dallas police department? Yeah, there are, but I got news. They're bad doctors. They're bad lawyers. There's bad accountants. And I know we have a different form of responsibility because we can put people in jail. But my point is, is that we hire from the human race. So we're going to have flawed individuals within our profession. It's our job to root them out. And I said it time and time again, and you know, people may not believe it, but everyone at this table will agree. Nobody hates bad cops more than the good ones. And we will do whatever we can to get rid of that element. But there is a due process in everything. You, you know, whether folks want to admit or not, there are employee rights. You just can't fire somebody without some form of documentation or a reason why. And, uh, you know, what the activists sometimes came against Dallas was, you know, we had bad actors in Indiana, Michigan, Detroit, New York. I mean, they're a thousand plus miles away. It didn't even happen here. But we pay for it. We have riots here when if you look at our record, we have reduced officer involved shootings by more than 70 percent in the last 10 years. 
that's something. I mean, I think every shooting, you know, is sad. Nobody, any loss of life is bad. But when you can make drops in something like that, which is completely counter to a lot of the other major cities across this country, then we're doing something right. But yet the activists didn't care. And, and what a lot of people didn't understand is a high majority of the percentage of people that were here stomping and dragging, yelling and screaming and, and tearing up this city, you know, downtown had, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in damage, didn't even live in Dallas, didn't even live in Dallas County. When we ID'd and arrested some of them, they were from all over the country. They bust them here. Even because, Hawaii. Yeah. I was grabbing guys with that IDs from Hawaii. Hawaii. Because they were funded here by far whoever, whoever you want to call them. I'm not here to play political, but we all know, you all know who we're talking about. But they funded and brought them here to, to create chaos in the largest cities across this country. And unfortunately, Dallas is a top 10 city. And we had to face it. And the, the problem is, is when you had individuals like you two guys and the other SWAT guys and, and officers who are spending 12 to 16 hours on the street... And then you're asking them to, you know, in every single thing that they do, maintain a bar this high. It doesn't happen that way. Somebody's throwing bricks at you. You have to respond. And there's nothing pretty about violence. It was never created to be pretty on either side. It is a form of intimidation. And at times we have to use violence to gain a goal. We just want to use as least amount of force necessary to affect that goal. But would you rather be shot or would you rather be hit with a beanbag? Odds are, take the, I would take the beanbag, you know, because they're less likely to, ingrate, to to injure. Will it? Can it? Sure, it's not perfect. But, uh, you know, we have some officers now that are, that are, that are facing some, some legal issues that they should not be facing. They were forced and told to be there. They reacted like they were trained. When you have three different entities, I mean officers from three different cities, and they all react the exact same way, that means it's unilateral training. How can you say it's flawed? No. What sucks is you may aim for somebody's torso or stomach area. What happens when they duck? We can't control that, and we're, but we're asked to. And so, uh, you know, the activists were, were very tough on me. And, uh, you know, a lot of it, some of it was Geiger. Some of it was just other, uh, you know, other shootings that we had. Um, but I said something, and I meant it till, till this day. I will meet anybody, any place, any time, and have any conversation as long as it's constructive and productive. We ain't going to be, you know, cussing each other out. I want no part of that. Some of them have taken me up on it. They, we've had them out here, you know, stomping and dragging out here. And I said, come on in. Let's have coffee. And, you know, maybe we'll agree. Maybe we won't agree. But at least we'll understand each other's point of view. What are there some of the easiest to deal with that you've You know you've who I really like? Mm -hmm. uh, smash the topic. Yep. You know, he wasn't a great yeah. fan of mine. Uh, you know, he didn't like me too, too much. Um, but he came by one time and he said, Mike, you know, uh, I'd like to interview you. And I think he fully thought that I was going to say, hell no. I said, come on, bring it on. Well, because what did I have to hide? You know, I'm going to fight for the officers. And if he's got hard questions, I'm going to answer the best that I can. Some questions I can't answer just because it's not in my purview to answer. But I'll answer up for this organization. I'll answer up for the membership and for the officers. Um, somebody has to fight for him. So, uh, but he's he's a really good guy. He really is. He I definitely like has a, a leaning towards the other side, mm -hmm. but he's always been, in my opinion, fair towards us. Yes. You know, if, if if you say something, he takes you at your at your word, and he's never been 
just malicious and trying to attack people. You know, it's always been he reports what he sees. Yeah. And and he's upfront about that. It's like this is this is my opinion. This isn't this isn't, you know, what actually happened or anything. He he's very fair about what he does. Yeah, he was very fair. And and he did ask me some very hard questions, but a lot of the questions that they, that he asked was just lack of knowledge. I mean, it wasn't because he's not I'm not saying he was stupid. He just didn't have the police knowledge of why we do what we do. He didn't understand we train that way. He didn't understand that's policy that we operate this way. He didn't understand why it's policy. And so I think uh, my um, my training and use of force and teaching at the academy, going back to the academy, helped me to be knowledgeable about that. And so I was, uh, a lot of the times when I spoke to the activists and all that, you know, it's hard to argue facts, you know, not statistics. Anybody can tilt statistics, but facts are facts. And so um, when you can show them that it says it here on page 11 of General Orders 900s right here, that's why officers do that. And he would actually turn around and then, share that information yeah. with everybody. So yeah. I, I really appreciated the things that he did. Yeah. I'd actually, I gave him the general orders and I say, you look it up. And you know, that's, that's the thing that bothered me about chief hall. You know, people, people want to say an activist jumped on this, that I hated her. I was against her. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, when she got selected, did I know she was the sixth person on the list and got selected? Yeah. Okay. But what am I supposed to do about that? She's already selected. Okay. So she's going to be our chief. So what I told my, you know, my e-board, I said, look, we need to embrace this. She's going to be our next chief. Our department was in the lowest of lowest that I've, that I've you know, seen it in a very, very long time. She has got to succeed. So we flew to Detroit. We, fl- we were at her retirement party there. We welcomed her here. I had many conversations with her on back channels saying, look, you know, I know how the optics have to look. We don't have to be friendly. But just we can have the bat phone kind of theory. Just call me or whatever. I'll call you. Run things by me. Not for permission, but just for perspective on history, on what will work, what won't work, why I think it won't work. And, um, you know, I said because politics play a very heavy hand in policing in the city of Dallas and leadership. And it made me laugh because she told me, Mike, I know politics. I deal in Detroit politics. And I wanted to say that ain't Texas politics. You know, Michigan is a lot different than you know, Texas. And, um, and so we did everything we can to try and help her and assist her. And, um, and she just would turn me down at every, at every turn. And then when she got here and she got rid of chiefs like Tittle, she got rid of John Lawton. I knew it was, this was not going to work out because I'm going to be honest with you. If I'm a chief coming in, I'm going to look at the ones that ran against me and say, look at their value and say, look, I need to succeed because I have no, you know, I have no knowledge about policing Texas, policing in Dallas. So I'm going to take those individuals that ran against me if, if, if they were quality and I'm going to keep them on board and I'm going to tell them, hey, look, I'm only going to be here three to five years. And after me, it's going to be somebody else. If I succeed, you succeed. If you're not the chief here, you're going to be a chief somewhere else. So let's let's all, you know, put the bullshit aside, put the hard feelings to the side and let's make this thing work. She didn't do that. She got rid of all the institutional knowledge that was here, the good stuff. And Chief Tittle, and I think everybody in this room would agree, hopefully, that Chief Tittle is one of the finest chiefs that we have ever had because he went straight from here and is doing an amazing job in Richardson. Um, And so when that happened, I knew, oh, man, we got problems. We got problems. So when Garcia got here and did the absolute reverse, I said, I think this is going to work. I want to go back real quick to the – 
the Activism. 2020 riots. Yeah. So can you kind of give your perspective on, you know, we, we were seeing it across the country it escalating. Mm-hmm. We knew it was coming and it was in the middle of a pandemic. Right. You know, everything was a social distance. You couldn't, you couldn't uh, even have two more than two people in an elevator. Right. But everything seemed to go on pause during the well, protest and the riots. And then can you kind of give your perspective of, have we you already talked about the, the operators that are, that are in trouble right now, but can you kind of talk about your, Right. Go into more on that. Well, I, th- I think the problem the problem with the riots is they were so polarizing, and it almost, you know, it almost uh, forced you to pick a side if you let it. And I had this conflict with uh, with Chief Hall. You know, when we had the when we had the uh, when we had the protest outside of City Hall, and there was all the kneeling and the marching and all that, I said, Chief, I don't think we should do this because you're choosing a side the police department is supposed to be apolitical the rule of law is the rule of law it doesn't pick a side it's right or wrong and if you choose a side you're pushing your personal opinion onto the the greater of the dallas police department then you might have some people that believe like i 100 percent believe in respecting every culture every heritage and every color okay but I didn't believe in the mission statement of the BLM. It was destruction of the core value of the home, of the husband and a wife. And I don't think, I'm not saying that a family can't be a single mother. What I'm saying is what works best for a child, you know, to have not only a mothering figure there, but a male role model, whether it's a father or a brother, whatever. You've got to have that because we all know when dealing with gangs, they will go find that role model if you don't present that role model and that when they go find it, it's usually somebody who's trying to use them. And so, um, I went to the, uh, to the protest because I felt I needed to. Okay. But my thing was when you started to march as an organization, okay, we believe in free speech. We protect the constitution of the United States. We uphold it. Right. So I asked her, well, what happens when somebody wants to get in your march and is holding a sign that is derogatory to what, you know, what your message is? Are you, what are you going to do to them? She was like, well, we'll ask them to leave. How do you do that? You're supposed to protect the Constitution. Everybody has a right to protest. Even if you don't like it, they have a right to. So you have to allow that person to walk with you. Or why are we here? That's our job. And so it went back and forth. And, you know, I didn't like the fact that there was individuals that got up there and and pretty much just said that we have, you know, we're a racist organization. Really? No, we're not. You know, do we have bad cops? Yeah, we do. But the, the mission, the premise of this organization is we have individuals that risk their life every single day for somebody they have absolutely no contact with or know. And they don't care. They could care less what color they are. They're doing it because it's their calling. And you're going to sit here and get up on a stage and tell them that they're racist? Get out of here. So I left. And, you know, I took a little heat for that or whatever. Um, but I just think I think we have to be consistent, you know. Um, but on the other hand, we were the first organization when George Floyd was killed. We were the first organization that came out and made a political, you know, uh, made a positive statement, you know. And our statements were just clear. We had signs that says, we hear you. We see you. We respect you. I think those are three statements that law enforcement should be saying to every single citizen they protect, right? And it had nothing to do with whether I thought he killed him or not. It had everything to do with, 
I would not, uh, I don't believe they followed good policy. You know, how do you sit there and, you know, kneel on a guy, put weight on a guy, whatever. You're holding him down, and you've got dozens and dozens of people saying, get him help, get him help, and you just ignore them like they're not even standing there? You know, what does that do to the profession, right? That's the message I was saying. You have to treat better. You have to treat people better than that, not just the person you're arresting, but the individuals who are watching you because that's the people that you have to answer to. That's the public. So, um, you know, the activists, you know, there were certain ones, I think, that made a living off hating me. You know, I made no money off protecting officers' rights, okay? Some people out there make a living off chaos, off riots, and off division. And I don't think this country is going to go, is going to move forward till we call out those individuals. And are they really helping or are they hurting? And are they making a dime off deaths? And they are. They're making a lot of dimes. So during those protests, Danny, you, you responded, and as well as Kent. And Mike was, you know, you, you're neck deep in it too from, mm. from this, the association side and the department side. I want to go into that. We haven't really talked much about these, uh, about this incident. We talked a little bit on, uh, you know, Matt, and you talked about it, touched on it briefly during one of the episodes. But how tough of a time, how tough of a job was it to deal with the administration and juggle all that? And also, you got to keep, show support for this side, but also you're you're dealing with an administration over there, uh that you actually work for. You work for the department. Right. Well, <laughs> I had to make sure every time I got on TV that I said that I'm the president of the Dallas Police Association. I had to make sure that was differentiated to keep myself out of trouble. Um, but, you know, uh, the history of DPD and labor organizations, you know, um, as they've given us, they've given us pretty much a lot of grace at, at time and say, you know, as long as you're representing your group, you pretty much have carte blanche. You just, you know, you can't... Um, directly insult you know people which i know i i don't think i ever did that you know especially leaders city leaders you, you got to show respect um i think it was tough not just because we had the activists and the riots going on but you know we also had you know like the uh one of the things that was that was completely unnecessary was the vice incident you know it's the same thing you know and and you know chief hall came in and he and she wanted to make a statement and that statement was you know i'm here to clean up this town and she the problem is she took the wrong group being vice i mean if you have 23 individuals who all do their reports and do their investigations the exact same way that's not an employee problem that's a training issue that's a policy issue and we knew it was a policy issue because they were already implementing changes for the last year and a half so how do you sit there and turn around and know we have crooked cops? No, you don't. You know, it was amazing to me that, that Chief Hall didn't understand that when you're in vice and you go into an illegal gambling operation, you have to gamble. She was like, that's illegal. How are you doing it? You, how, how are they going to – they're going to know you're a cop if you're like, yeah, I'd like to bet, but I ain't going to bet. I'm just going to watch. You know, no, you've got to gamble, and nobody gives you a receipt. You know, for the money you lost. Purchasing drugs. It's illegal to be in possession, Same but thing. we got to do it undercover. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and they they try to rationalize it. Well, when you buy drugs, you actually have something in your hand. Okay. 
Well, when you gamble, you went in there knowing it's a gambling operation. You have to gamble to make a case. Anyway, it was completely ridiculous. And to, uh, you know, label those officers and those supervisors as criminals. And then for it to take, you know, 18 months. And then to really come back with nothing other than administrative, you know, uh, paperwork issues that they already knew was a problem and then hand out 10, 12, 15 days off. Um, and then, you know, that's in the middle of the, uh, you know, the activist issues, too. It was almost like I was fighting uh, a very, very small percentage of the public that had a completely unrealistic and sometimes purposeful uh, reason of hating on us. And then I had a command staff that was completely out of control, that just weren't using common sense. And the lower command staff, I mean, you know, they got to play ball. I'm not mad at them. I mean, you know, they got to do what their chief tells them to do. You know, they can't, you know, there's no such thing as a mutiny. So, you know, I can't be mad at them. And so it, it was just, I mean, it was like every day I was almost getting up, just waiting, okay, what's going to happen today? And like I you know, when I took this organization over, nobody gave me a handbook that I could go look at Section 5. Okay, civil unrest, this is how you do that. Are you fighting with command staff? This is how you do it. Just had to play it by ear. And, uh, I, and I think, to be honest with you, the only, re- the only way I survived through most of that was because I really did have good relationships with the lower command staff. I was raised with them. So I knew their heart and they knew my heart. And they, they knew I had a job to do. So that, that's interesting, the relationship you had with the lower command staff. And you're kind of relating this to the relationship you had with them during the riots. What about the relationship with the DA during the riots? Was there any? And- yeah, I mean, you know, we got a love-hate relationship too. You know, uh, John and I, I mean, he used to sign warrants for me when he was a judge. You got to remember, John was a Republican, not once, but twice. You know, a lot of people don't know. People flip parties like here, they're like they're flipping bacon. Um, it's just whoever's in power, right? Um, and so, you know, I've known John for a very, very long time. And, you know, to his credit, he's done some really progressive, uh, especially the, uh, you know, the drug court has done some amazing progressive things. And, and it's a good thing. But he sometimes he goes too far. Prime example is the, you know, anything, you know, under $700, we're not going to prosecute for. He told me, he called me and said, hey, I'm looking at doing this. I said, John, if you want to do that, you can do that with your intake attorney, you know, your intake prosecutors. They can read a case and say, no, we're not going to prosecute. You don't got to get on TV. But it was about political. That's where the political hands get in. He wanted to get reelected, wanted to ensure that he was going to beat Toby, and wanted to make sure that he was going to win. So I'm going to throw this out there that shows I'm progressive, that I'm trying to help the downtrodden and the, and the poor. No, you're not. You know, you're hurting. You're hurting the mom and pop store that doesn't have a retirement. They don't have a pension. Everything they have is in that four walls of their little stop and go. Right. And what are you saying? You're telling the public that you can go in there and rob them for $699 worth of stuff, and we ain't going to do anything about it. I told him, you know what you're going to have? You're going to have murders because that mom-and-pop store can't take losses like that. At some point, it's their legal right to defend their property. Somebody's going to pull a pistol, and either you're going to force that shop owner to commit murder or the bad guy's going to murder them. And I I really thought that, like you said, it'd be in the intake that this would— they would just dis- dismiss these? Which we didn't care. I mean, they've been yeah, doing that but forever. But no, it was, at, like you said, we were not arresting. And I saw it one day when I was listening to the radio and I overheard uh, a call get dispatched about a woman who had her purse, her shoes, and everything else stolen while she was working out. And the officers caught the guy within probably eight minutes. 
Yeah. And uh, returned the stuff to the owner and then said they were cutting him loose. And I thought, what is going on? And then the officers were like, oh, well, we just don't arrest if it's under $700. $700 is a lot of damn money. Yeah, it I is. Mean, they, that's a lot of or it snapple. Or really yeah. important to you as well. Yeah, as, it's as a lot of snapples and, lim- and Slim yeah. Jims. That's a lot of, I mean, that's a lot <laughs> and, of shit. I've never spent $700 in well, a Well, and not only that, and, and, you know, the, the activists would always say, well, it's that mother sell- stealing Similac and stealing Pampers. There are there are a lot of charities throughout Dallas and Dallas County that will assist exactly that. Exactly. And every single one of us in this room has bought something for somebody that, you know, a, a citizen that you saw that didn't have enough money or they needed something, I've paid out of my pocket. And it goes right? back to what you said. It's more than $700. Yeah. What it's saying is free reign for you guys. Yeah. Free reign for you criminals to do whichever you want to do. Exactly. And, you know, you never looked at the downside. And, and he always come back with, well, our statistics are showing. I'm like, your statistics are saying that because people didn't call. Why would they call 911 if you're not even going to arrest anybody? So you don't have any offenses because they knew the cops weren't going to do anything they just stopped calling and so you know again you know me and the da you know we 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 go at it sometimes and again it ain't you know it ain't personal um i just told him you know stop doing stupid shit and i wouldn't have to get on the tv and blow you up um you know i I, again i think john crusoe has a good heart he does um one of our arguments he says all the time is mike i can't control the judges you know he's right judges are elected he can't control the judges but they work in his house. If he thinks a judge isn't doing their job or is failing, like this last shooting we just had, I mean, that guy who shot that whole family, not only was he wearing an ankle monitor, he was on probation for a lot of violent criminal acts against that family and against that victim already. What the hell was he doing out in public? He should have been in jail. If not in prison, he should at least been in jail on the ag assault with a deadly weapon that he already had family violence against the the uh, the victim. But he wasn't. He was out walking around. Well, you know, that's going to come blowing up this week. And I would expect John Crusoe to get on TV and, say, and call out that judge who put that person on probation and say, you failed the public, not the police. You failed to do your part of this job. We put him in jail. It's the other harm of the justice system, that they have to protect the public, and they are failing the public. What kind of uh, back and forth did you have over the the, the the SWAT operators that? Oh, a lot. Th- okay. A lot. You know, um, look, you know, how do you consider? So the whole argument here is, is that the 40 millimeter, because it is a primer, uh, instrument it has a small primer which discharges a bear uh, a, a beanbag through a barrel um, because it has to be accurate you know it ain't going to have a slingshot and so um to hit your target well because it has a primer and an igniter and a barrel they have uh said it's a deadly weapon okay it is titled less lethal for a reason we are trying to preserve a life. How are you in then inferring that because it has three same things as a shotgun that it's a deadly weapon? Really? You know, again, it's political. It's, it's you know, and they waited years to bring these things out. Why? To appease. You know, you just saw the Austin DA drop 21, you know, uh, charges on 21 different officers. Why? Because they knew it was bullshit. 
And we're still doing it here in Dallas. For what purpose? You know, to ruin these officers' lives when they were out there in the worst times of their career. You can't train for that. You cannot train for that because it's never reality. You know, SWAT has the hardest time because they train, they train, they train, they train. The problem is you can't train for every single situation. And that's why, you know, after they have, you know, uh, when they go out, they have a debrief because there's always something you can improve. There's always something that didn't go exactly right because we can't control what the actor's response is. You've dealt with the DA in fighting for their officer's rights mm -hmm. and, uh, and trying to, to clean that stuff up. What about when you were under the gun? You know, um, you know, I took a lot of heat for that. And, you know, what people fail to understand is that I had been answering, you know, officer-involved shootings. I've been doing them for seven years. I've done it the exact same way for seven years. The DA had never had a problem with it. They have their own DA investigators out there. They had never had a problem with it because they understand that cops still have constitutional rights if you're going to tell an officer that he doesn't have constitutional rights and he doesn't have due process you need to tell him that when you hire them not after they're involved in a situation you know again it wasn't my personal opinion you know i tell people already to this day i have never had a conversation with amber geiger about what happened i have never asked her because it's none of my business i've got to stay above that because it's not about my personal opinion. When on that night, those those command staff, just like I had done for the seven years, I go straight to command staff. Well, the first thing I did, you'll see the video. I walked up, I poked my head in the car to her, and I just asked her, "Are you okay? Do you need anything?" And she was like, "I'm okay." I said, "I'll be back." Went straight to command staff. They're all standing around, you know, dusting off their stars and all that, and bars and clovers. And I said, "What are we dealing with here? Is this an officer-involved shooting?" And they said, yes, Mike, it is. I said, so this is an officer-involved shooting. We are treating it like an officer-involved shooting. Absolutely. Because it was a lot different. You know, it was four flights up, 300 yards away. It, you know, there was no crime scene, really, like right in front of you. So I couldn't make a judgment call that, oh, yeah, this is an officer-involved shooting. You know, it wasn't a call where you, you know, came into a burglary in progress or somebody fired at you and you fired back. It was completely different. So I went to the people who were supposedly had the knowledge, and that was the command staff. And they told me. This is an officer-involved shooting. I said, okay, we have a protocol. I followed protocol. I talked to the attorneys. I knew that the attorney was about to call her. So she was invoking her attorney-client privilege right there. And so when I went to the car, she was in the car. I asked the, uh, unfortunately, I, I put another sergeant in it. I shouldn't have done that, you know, but I didn't think anything would come of it or whatever. And I said, hey, you know, whose car is that? And she said, it's mine. And so I wanted to be professional. If it was a senior corporal, then I would have just done it myself. But her being the same rank as me, I, wanted, I was trying to show her professionalism. And I said, you know, would you mind turning off your car? Her attorney is going to be calling her now. Okay. She turned it off. Um, and so I, you know, they want to say I ordered her. I didn't, you know, a sergeant can't order a sergeant. You know, I just asked her to do it. And she did it, believing that she was doing it right. And I know I was doing right. Um, and sure enough, she did have that conversation with uh, with her attorney, you know, and they made a big stink about that, that I was, you know, changing. Well, I got news when I was in major crimes and I was investigating and, and, and interrogating a criminal in the box. You know, we got the cameras on and the recorder on when they say I'm done talking. You know, I want an attorney. We don't keep talking. 
you know, they said this thing in, in trial. They were like, well, Mike Mata's not an attorney. Who is he to, you know, decide this and that? We do that every day. We know the Constitution. We don't violate it. If that's the case, why I would have just kept talking to that to the hook who had committed the crime. I don't care if he asked for an attorney. No, I have to respect and defend the Constitution. And even if I don't like this guy, he has due process rights. And we stop talking. And it isn't any different for an officer. So they made a big stink about that. They made a big stink when I got her out of the car. Well, I got her out of the car because in the car she had her companion officer. And any conversation I have with her, I wanted to keep the companion officer out of it so they wouldn't have to answer for it. I brought her out of the car because people kept coming and talking to her. And I, kept, I told her, stop talking to all these people, all their officers. And the officers, they were, they were trying to show good heart. They were just checking on her because she was very well liked. Um, but they were checking on her. The problem is every time an officer talks to her, they are going to be called down to IED. They are going to have to go down to homicide and write a statement. And so you're just creating more work for the detectives, right? Creating more work for them. So stop it. This ain't the time. So there's a grand jury referral yeah. on that incident. Can you kind of tell us about that? Again, so political pressure. Political pressure came and, you know, because, and I'll just say it, because I don't think the command staff had the courage to just be honest with the public and say, this is policy, this is practice, he didn't do anything wrong, the officer has constitutional rights, the officer has due process just like every other citizen. And just explained it to them. And again, maybe people wouldn't agree, but attorneys out there would say, yeah, you know, there would be plenty of attorneys on TV arguing and they would say, yeah, they got due process. You know, they, they got to protect that or whatever. They didn't do that. And because they, you know, chose to investigate me and all this mess, what did it do? It lessened the credibility of the department. It lessened the integrity of the Dallas Police Department because now I was the face of the Dallas Police Department. I wasn't Mike Mata. I wasn't Mike Mata, president of the association. The activists painted me as, see, there's your dirty cops in DPD, and they're as high as the, you know, the president of the association, you know, who the big bad union boss. And so that was a huge failure on the department to do the right thing. Um, that's what pissed me off more than anything. I mean, was I worried? Uh, I ain't going to lie. You know, in this in the society that we live in, you know, you can indict a ham sandwich. Uh, I was I was worried. You know, it was very, very difficult on my family. Um, my son got it. My daughter didn't really get it. My wife really got it. And, um, you know, how do you tell how do you tell your wife it's going to be OK? You know, um, she's she's watching TV. She's seen me getting blown up. You know, she's hearing all these, you know, activists and then you know, attorneys who are really activists. They just happened to be an attorney too, saying that I was, you know, crooked and needed to go to prison. And, you know, they were saying that was 10 years in prison, you know, and what really pissed me off, I had people in my own organization or people on this department that were talking shit on me that didn't, that I'd known my whole career that couldn't even just pick up the phone and call me, you know, because again, it, it turned into a black white thing. It's not a black white thing. It's a right and wrong thing, you know? And, uh, they had a problem with that, and I just thought I'd earned enough for just call me and let's talk this out. They had a problem that we gave her legal coverage. I'm bound. I don't have a choice. It's in our bylaws. If it's an officer-involved shooting, we have to cover them. If not, she was just going to sue us, and we would have to cover her, and then we're liable also. So you've got to follow your own bylaws and your own legal guidelines. You, know, you want to blame somebody, blame the goddamn department. They're the ones who said it was an officer-involved shooting. So, uh, you know, again, you know, I took I took a beat for that. But, 
in the end, I, I, I believed I was going to be okay. Um, I appreciate the fact, again, I appreciate the fact in, in this incident that, that, you know, John Crusoe, you know, did a referral because he could have done a straight indictment um, like he's done on some other things. I mean, he did a referral and, um, you know, at least gave me a fighting chance. So uh, I, I will I will say uh, the day that the, the day that the indictment was coming back or not or whatever, my wife called my mom and said, well, what, what's Mike's favorite food? I mean, it was almost like, you know, it was my last meal or whatever. And, uh, and my mom said it was a Mexican dish called fideo. And so um, she gave the recipe to my, my wife, and God bless her. She tried. She tried. <laughs> my kids wanted no part of it, and I, I, I ate the whole bowl. You know, uh, it wasn't quite like mom made, but, uh, but you know, everybody shows it has a love language, and that was her love language for me that day. So, um you know, I wish I didn't go through that. He'll go on the intro line. You can indict a ham sandwich these days. That's a fact. That's yeah. a fact. Yeah, and so just so they kind of understand, you know, and in, in a referral is when they just take the case and they preside, uh, present it to the grand jury. And um, usually the grand the DA will give an opinion. You know, we think this is a strong case. We we don't think this is really a strong case. And also, um, you know, your attorneys can provide a, a grand jury packet, and it's kind of an explanation in their opinion of, of your uh, presentation of the facts, whether than just a full indictment is, you know, you're charged with, you're charged with a, usually it's a felony, and um, you're going straight to trial. And a lot of times they'll say, we're going to indict, and we'll let the trial figure it out, which I was worried about because – Sometimes grand juries are like, we don't want this on our plate because it's got it's too hot. Let's let them. And then now I'm going through a year, year and a half of real hell, you know. And so, um, and a lot of officers go through that. A lot of officers go through that right now. These days, yeah, yeah. When they crazy, when they shouldn't even been indicted, but it was nobody wants to do the right thing. Some weak ass people. So the the grand jury referral and this whole this whole charge against you, it was from the Botham Gene. Uh, incident with Amber Geiger. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, hey, look, uh, this was tough, man. You know, it's, um, uh, look, do I think, do I think Amber Geiger has to pay a penance for actions? Absolutely. An innocent man lost his life who did not deserve to die, plain and simple. Was there malice in her heart to intentionally and knowingly kill somebody? No. That's murder. We all know as cops what murder is, okay? What she did was manslaughter, right? She was negligent. There was an opportunity for her to disengage, and she should have, but she didn't, okay? That's not, that's not intent and malice. That's not going to the trunk, getting your gun, coming out and say, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to get my trunk, come back, do it. That's murder, okay? So I will say this. There's two things that, uh, that uh, will have affected me, and I will carry it for the rest of my life. So the day after, my phone rang, and it was Botham Jean's brother. And at first, I didn't believe it was him. And then something told me, and, and I just, you know, I don't know if y'all religious or not, because at that time, I, I would have thought people were pranking me. But something told me, and I, I just, I believe it was, it was a hand of God. Listen to this guy. Don't hang up on him. And, um, and then he started talking and I started to figure out this, this really is his brother. And he says, um, 
I hear you're, uh, you know, kind of the union boss or whatever. And I said, well, I am president of the association. And he said, my mom is coming in. Would you like to talk to her? And I said, absolutely, please let me talk to her. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't going to have any answers for her because I didn't have any answers. And, and maybe this is selfish, you know, and if it is, I'll own it. I'm selfish. I needed to tell her that I was sorry. I needed to tell her that the members of the Dallas Police Association, the members of the Dallas Police Department are sorry that this was not, you know, he did not deserve to die. I needed to tell her, and I've said this many times in, in, uh, in a lot of my uh, media issues, that, you know, that if my son grew up to be the caliber of person that Botham was, then I'm a success as a father. You know, he was an extraordinary young man who had a long life ahead of him and had done amazing things and probably would have done even more amazing things. And unfortunately, horrible things sometimes happen to great people. And that and that happened to him. But I mean, I was overjoyed to the point that I would absolutely have an opportunity just to to tell her that we were sorry and that we will do our best to get her answers that I think she needs. Right. Um, and so they were going to call me the next day and we were going to work this out. And I had told my wife and, you know, I was worried about what I was going to say. And, um, you know, I had talked to the attorneys are like, Mike, I don't know if you should do this. And, uh, you know, attorneys be damned. I was going to do it. You know, if I had, if it got bad or whatever, then I'd get up and walk out. You know, if I got my ass kicked, I got my ass kicked. I don't care. But I needed to look her in the face and let her know that we felt pain for her. We were not ugly people, right? <clears throat> so anyway, I waited for the call. I waited for the call. I waited for it. Never got the call. Never got the call. Come to find out, you know, a, a certain attorney that I won't, won't name, Lee Merritt, um, got involved. And I truly think... They took sadness that was in her heart and just, you know, wanting to just have questions answered, like every parent would want, and they turn it into anger, and they turn it into something that she didn't need to carry. Um, and so I was always, uh, I've always regretted not being able to at least have the opportunity. And again, it might be selfish on my part, but I, I really wanted to look in her face and in her eyes and tell her that I was truly sorry that her son was an amazing person, that he didn't deserve to die. Um, and, you know, whatever happened out of that would have happened out of that. So it was unfortunate that that didn't happen because um, I really wanted it to. And um, the second thing uh, that I witnessed, and I think everybody who saw this has to, has to agree, I saw the most touching moment of grace that I have ever seen in my life. When that young man, his little brother, asked to hug Amber. And, you know, I mean, how, how is a person that young have such a giving heart to understand the guilt and the pain that is placed upon Amber, that believe that she, yes, maybe she did pull that trigger, but she's regretted every moment you know, since then, you could see that. And he wanted, he felt that he needed to relieve her of some of that pain and by giving her a hug. And kudos to the judge for allowing it and then taking the beating afterwards. Yeah. I mean, who in their right mind could say she shouldn't have done that and not given her a Bible? I mean, what society have we turned into that it's throw stones, throw stones and hang them all? 
without any compassion whatsoever? I mean, lives were ruined out of this. And to watch that young man to with the fullest of hearts, and I believe God laid hands on him and said, I'm going to help heal you. I'm going to help heal Amber. But moreover, the millions of people that saw that either live or afterwards on video, how, did, how does that not touch your heart and put a tear in your eye? You're unhuman if it didn't. And I think it showed everybody watching that, that bad things can happen. But out of those bad things, people can show compassion for each other. That's what humans are supposed to do. Um, and so it, it was it was one of those wonderful things I've ever seen. And it broke my heart afterwards to where, you know, some people in his own circle were just dogging that young man for doing that. I mean, really? I mean, if anything, you know, if anything, we should all praise him for uh, for taking weight off all of us, you know, and showing us that there is grace in some of the youngest individuals that walk this earth is more spiritually and um, a better person than, you know, 75% of us that are walking this earth. I don't know if I could have done that. So beautiful moment amazing moment and i uh you know uh you know i I mean i think it fills everybody's heart just when you think about it you know because especially with all the crap that's going on now it's almost polarizing everybody's you know for some reason everybody's got to pick a side you gotta you know you gotta hate this person because he's a d or they're an r or you know or or whatever and they're forgetting about you know what truly makes us people and that is caring about the person that sits next to us uh and he did that and when uh far majority of the public wouldn't have the internal strength to do that and that young man did yeah so you talked about earlier about the department kind of being at a low point Mm -hmm. just with everything that's going on in the country pandemic you know leave it at coming on the hills of 7 7 2016 healing after that Pandemic, riots, you know, destruction of the city, indictments uh, of officers, and then there's an opening for the chief job. Yeah, and he's coming and, from California. And we hear California's coming. <laughs> Talk about that. Man, let me tell you what. Uh, you know, I had heard from inside people that he was the finalist, and I was watching all the interviews and uh, – you know, I had heard that they sent a headhunter for him. And usually to me, that means that they have an agenda. They're, they, they're, they're looking for something specifically. And, and then the fact that he was from California, I was like, oh, hell, I, I'm going to retire. I could not. If, it, he, if he'd have come here, pure California and all that, I would not be here today. I would have been gone. I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do it again. Not after, not after Hall. Um, but what was funny or was different, the everybody I called and man, I called everybody. I called LULAC. I called the NAACP. I called all the major churches, the pastors there. Nobody had a bad thing to say about this guy. Nobody. I called the, the association there glowing. That's usually a bad sign. <laughs> usually when they got nothing bad to say about a chief, they're trying to get rid of their trash. Right. <laughs> and I think they kind of felt that apprehension in our conversation because a week later, they flew to Dallas. Three of their board members flew to Dallas to convince me that he's the right guy. And I'm like, okay, now they're wasting money. This guy must really be bad, or maybe he's the real deal. And so I start doing a lot of research. I mean, if he's that bad, there's got to be, you know, headlines about him fighting with 
you know, the union and fighting with the membership and all this, nothing, nothing. And nobody can scrub their media that good. You know, I even had our PR people, you know, get their professionals and dig and nothing. And so, you know, I had to, I had to, you know, maybe believe a little bit. Now I'm watching the videos of him, you know, interviewing and he's just knocking it out of the park. He's saying the right things. And he's not just saying the right things to get hired by the, you know, command staff or the, or the city leadership. He's really backing, you know, saying a lot of positive things about rank and file, about hard decisions that have to be made, about, you know, judging people on split second, you know, that we have to think about they have constitutional rights. You know, all those words that I'm like, really, really? Um, I, I was it, in Toronto, Toronto. Yeah. For uh, an intelligence convention. I was a guest speaker there. And I had people coming up to me there saying, you know Eddie Garcia? Well, obviously I'm in doubt. Yeah, yeah, but do you know him? Well, you know, he's friendly enough, and that guy's amazing. Yeah. Like, that guy's an animal. Like, he just goes and goes, and he's super smart. Yeah, that, that guy's amazing. And these were people from different provinces of Canada. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, the, you know, the funny thing is when you look at him, you know, he's got the sleeves of tattoos and all this and all that. You know, y'all don't know this, but he's a bean counter. He's a nerd. He's a number nerd huge number nerd he loves stats he loves numbers he loves math and um and and that's why when you see him when he talks to council you know in the beginning you had a couple of council members that kind of came after him well he cut that shit down real quick because he'll kill you with facts numbers boom off the top of his head he'll give you shit that you can't argue with because he does his homework and so but anyway you know he got here and you know uh, another one of the e-board members who's been here a very, very long time, he's like, Mike, don't get sucked in. Mike, don't get sucked in. It's too good to be true because I'm just, I'm just eating this up, especially after going through with all, all I went with. And, you know, him and I would meet for coffee. We would have a drink. I mean, all these things. And we would have very, you know, very serious conversations. And, I mean, he was straight up honest with me. Um, I'm going to tell you now, you know, I thank God. Uh, he's received a little bit better compensation recently uh, because I argued that I'm, I told him I have had numerous cities call me asking if he has a contract because you've got a lot of, a lot of major cities that crime is shooting through the roof. They're getting new elections, new mayors, new, and they all have to make a splash. So they need some, they need to bring in somebody who is a proven record. Well, there's only one chief in the top 15 cities of this country that has dropped crime three years in a row. And his name is Eddie Garcia. And I promise you, they're coming for him. And, you know, I can't blame the guy. Chiefs only have so much of a shelf life. He's got to do what's right for him and his family, you know. And so am I going to be mad at him because some other city's going to double his, his salary? You know what? You earned it. Go. You know, it sucks for us. But you know what? We should have doubled his damn salary then. Uh, and we did, and we haven't done that. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people are going to come looking for, for him. A lot of major other cities, a lot of corporations. Wouldn't be surprised if FIFA doesn't come calling. I mean, think about it. He's from a Latin country, speaks Spanish. Um, he's, you know, president of the major chief association, so he's got a shoe in in every major city. I mean, that's that's written for the NFL, Major League Baseball, you know, Basque NBA, you know, you name it. So, um it's going to suck if that happens because th he is the best chief I've had since I've been here. And I had Kunkel. Uh, and so, um, yeah, he's uh, he's something else. No, I agree. He's the best that, that I've worked under. And it would be, you know, we better enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. Because you know, nothing, nothing lasts forever. You just don't find a chief genuine. 
like that. No. It's very difficult because they it, sometimes chiefs feel like they have to maintain this stature of not being what the worker bees. You know, I can't, we can't, we can't associate together, whatever. No, you can't. You can be real, especially if, you know, you're asking them to risk their lives. You better be goddamn real with them, you know, and he is. So it's much appreciated. Well, besides Chief Garcia, what about you as far as accomplishments? I mean, if you're looking back at this long career, I've enjoyed listening to you because this is even more than I even knew about you. I really do appreciate you getting on the microphone with this podcast to share this. I've always looked at this podcast as not just an opportunity for officers to tell their story, but also in a way to preserve DPD history. I feel like you've definitely made a footprint or a signature mark on this department. You will be someone I always look at as being an icon for DPD for me. But looking at your entire career, besides being the class advisor for 293, what do you feel most accomplished about? Yeah, that's a tough question. It really is. Um, first of all, as, as far as being a cop, yeah, I, I'm going to kind of break it up. You know, being a cop, I hope that I made lives better. I hope that in my days of patrolling uh, Southeast and Pleasant Grove and Oak Cliff and you know Central and Northeast Division and Southwest Division. I hope I made, uh, I affected people's lives that made their life better. You know, I don't want to say that I hope I saved lives, you know. I mean, I think that's, you know, I don't know. I just hope I affected lives that help them have a better life. Um, maybe I changed a kid's direction, you know. Maybe I helped a, you know, a, a spouse, a battered spouse find a way out, you know. Um and then, you know, maybe I just built more confidence in the department from the community that I served. I was somebody that maybe the community looked at and said, you know, that Mike Modicop, he he's all right. You know, he's a good guy. Um, so professionally, I hope that's what I have as far as community. Professionally, as far as the department, um, I hope I was a good, first of all, a good trainer. And, and I had some really good recruits that I trained. Um, but I hope I was a good leader. And in other words, I, I, like I said earlier in this podcast, you know, I became a sergeant because I, I, I felt that I needed to help make effective change on the department. And I hope I have done that. I hope that people that I supervised felt like I was a, a good supervisor for them, that I cared more about them than I cared about the number of arrests or traffic stops or whatever. Um, so I hope, I hope that worked in my favor. Um, as far as the organization, you know, uh, this organization has a history. You know, there's a reason why there's a BPA. There's a reason why I, there was a LPOA, LPOA now Nelio, um, and then at that time, you know, FOP 588. At some point, whether it was, uh, you know, whether it was verified or not, some individuals felt like they were not represented well that they did not get the representation they deserve because why would they create another organization? And, um, you know, even if, even if some folks may not believe it, they believed it. That's what makes it valid, you know? And so we've got to own that as a police association, the longest uh, serving police association, the long, largest police association. We've got to own that. 
And so, you know, I don't think people, you know, I would hope that they didn't intentionally exclude people. Um, do I think that it did happen? Probably. Do I think there were some people that wasn't helped uh, because of the color of their skin or their creed or their nationality or their sexual preference? Probably. Yeah. Again, we're human, you know, and there's assholes everywhere. And that could have been in the leadership of this organization. So I hope that during my tenure, both as a VP and as a president, I hope that the rank and file members and non-members, even if they're members of organ organizations, um, believe that I would help anybody, that we are a organization of inclusion. I don't care what color you are. I don't care who you sleep with. I don't care what your sexual orientation is. I don't, I don't care anything. All the thing that matters to me is that you are the same uniform as I do. That's all that matters to me. Um, so I hope, I hope that is uh, cemented in uh, the rank and file of the Dallas Police Department. As far as, um, you know, um, how the public sees the Dallas Police Department, I hope they just see that I'm fair as a leader. That, yeah, you know, I'm going to fight for officers. When they're right, I'm going to fight to the very end. But also, you know, when we're wrong, I'm going to I'm going to own it. Somebody's got to. If you're going to have any credibility, you got to own the bad with the good and be willing to do that. It ain't fun, uh, but, you know, it's necessary or whatever. So, um, you know, I, I know financially the members of this organization are much better off than when I got here. You know, even if I'm not totally uh, responsible for that, I played a part in that, I believe. So that's good for their lives. Um, as far as regrets, you know, I, I know I made some mistakes. And again, when I became the president, nobody handed me a handbook and says, this is how you do it. They just said, kind of figure it out. You know, um, I had good support and Frederick Frazier and James Parnell and, and Scott Sayers and other people in the beginning that helped me, helped me uh, through this. And, uh, and I would call Ron from time to time and, and throw stuff off him and him giving me advice. Um, but really when it came down to making a decision, you know, I had, there's some individuals maybe in this organization that feel that at times I was somewhat led as a dictator. What they don't understand is that when you're a membership of, of an organization this large, sometimes you just got to make hard decisions and you're, you're the one who's going to own it, not them. Nobody's going to go to VPs or board members and say, why did you just, no, they're going to go to the president. So in some of those really hard decisions, it was for their own good that I took the I took the hit on this because ultimately I'm the one who's going to have to answer for it. It would be wrong for me to say, well, I made this decision, but the whole board and the, they all agreed to it. It's their fault, too. No, that's, that's not what a leader does. A leader owns it, and I was going to own it. Um, I think uh, the organization by a whole, I, I lead by, com, uh, you know, community. You know, I get everybody's opinion as much as I can. But when it comes down to it, and this is what it's hard for some of these guys to understand, you just got to make a call. You got to make a call. And it's you got to search your soul and figure out what if it's right or wrong. And whatever it is, you got to own it. And so if you're going to do that, it's got to be a dictatorial kind of way of doing it. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, uh, being the president of this organization has, um, has, has been uh, an honor leading the men and women of the Dallas Police Association. It has truly been an honor. Has it been taxing? Absolutely it has. Has it been tough on my life? Absolutely it has. But it also has been the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Um, it made me feel good. And again, selfish or not, and when somebody came, came to me with a problem, if I was to help them solve their problem, um, then I could see that I was changing their lives for the better. 
So, you know, um, as far as my family, you know, I've, I've kind of made the, uh, uh, you know, made the statement before that it, you know, that it's time. And so whenever I, I, I do all the retirement parties and I, you know, hand as many badges to the re, uh, people that are retiring and I always ask them the same thing. I, I, I really do. You know, how do you know it's time, especially the last few years? Cause I was kind of, you know, getting an idea that I was heading my way. And they all said the same thing, you know, as corny as it is. They said, Mike, you just know, you just wake up one day and you know, and you know what? They're absolutely right. I mean, it was like one day, you know, I, I, again, I had some health issues that kind of, you know, you know, when your doctor tells you, hey, look, Mike, if you don't change your lifestyle within three to five years, you're going to either have a major heart attack or you're going to have a stroke. And he was being serious. Uh, with my dad dying at an early age, I said, that's not going to be me. So um, that played a part in it. Um, another part in it was that, you know, I sat there and said, have I accomplished as much as I think I can at this time? And, you know, I think I have, you know, um, and it's time for a younger generation. You know, um, you got to know when it's time to step down. Every organization needs a new face. They need a new voice. They need new leadership. Even if your leadership is doing well, you've got to keep that. You got to keep it growing. If you're not growing, you're dying. And so it was time to hand this off to a younger to a younger person, you know, who, who, who might do things a little bit different and might have a little bit more success than I had. So, um, again, I have not been the best father and husband for the last 10 years. I got a lot of making up to do about to be an empty nester. So me and the wife are going to, we're going to date again. We're going to find a way to enjoy each other again. And most of that's on me, you know, um, but we're going to do that. And, uh, you know, the last thing I'd want to say to the, to the officers is, um, just remember, you know, police work, it's a profession. It's not who you are. You know, we have so many officers that think all they are is a cop. No, no, you're not. You're way more than that. But you have got to find an outlet outside of DPD. DPD is your life only if you let it be your life. Get involved in things outside of this department, even if it's just coaching your kids' soccer team, basketball team, baseball team. Find the human side of police work or of living because this job, this profession, if you let it, it will kill you, whether physically, emotionally, you know, relationship wise. If you don't find something else out there to believe in other than this profession, because I'm going to tell you right now, when you leave, the profession will leave you. You know, you're only as good as the day you're here. They're just going to replace you. And that's just the business. So don't let the profession replace your family. You know, um, remember that it's just a job. It's not who you are. Sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. Bye.
Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey Mrs. Hey Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how hard the sun and the moon, I'll never give up. I'll never give up on you. 